Hey, this is Marv Wolfman, co-creator of the Teen Titans, and you're listening to 11 O'Clock Comics. <laughs> Like a winner. An all winner squad. Yes. Appropriately enough, right? Right. <laughs> so something special planned for tonight? I, I think Vince was teasing something last week. I wasn't sure if um Oh, you mean it needs to be the greatest moment in EOC history? Yes. And he, yeah. he was and he was right. Um <laughs> <laughs> one hundred percent right. Correct. Never had on right now. Well, every every other guest we've ever had is not Roy Thomas. So I mean, I'm sure I'm sure yeah, nobody's well. going to be able to hear it anyway. I, I I'm sure when they take and compare themselves to the man, they'll be they'll find themselves lacking. Sorry, but it is the way it is. I'd like to think he would, but I really can't picture Rob Liefeld doing that. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I just I keep it real. I, I we've had we we we've had some very um... come on. I love Rob, but Jesus. Oh, dude! No, yeah. you and I are simpatico there. Yeah. It's, it's not it, it, that's not an issue. It's just how how someone may perceive themselves when they hear that. Sure, that's if Rob remembers he was on the show. No, I'm sure he probably, he probably remembers that he did I, the show. He, he I remembers. Don't he remembers what he said on the show or that. Oh no, one hundred percent. I think I think Rob would remember he's done the show before uh, Jonathan Hickman would. Oh, I'm sure Hickman doesn't remember. <laughs> You know, that'd be funny if we went back and made a list of all the people that ever been on the show and then played a guessing game as to who remembers they did the show or not. <laughs> like, I'm sure, like, Rucka doesn't remember. I'm sure Jason Aaron probably doesn't remember. Like, because these guys do a lot. Well, they that they have periods where they do a lot of press. And I, yeah. I, I would imagine that if they're one-timers, I mean, yeah. yeah and then you got to wonder about all the ones that do remember but front and say they don't remember. Kidding. Oh, but I'm saying no, but Latour might. I mean, he might not remember the. Yeah, I'm right. sure he doesn't. And you remember what show it is? Yes, that's right. It's eleven o'clock comics, episode six hundred and eighty-five. And I'm yeah. Vince B. You are Vince B. I can't believe it took him that long to be on our show. I'm David A. Price. Yes, you are, and I, of course, am Morbius, the living vampire. You will be Morbius for the entire episode. It's only apropos, it's apropos, right? Right, but you're not. Michael Morbius, unfortunately, Jason wooed everybody here for the crowning achievement, the shining moment to which we have aspired for 12 years. It's all downhill from here. There is one place to go and only one place. If you want to get your books, get them fast, get them cheap, get them delivered right to your door. Where is that place? Discount comic book service. Exactly. DCBService.com. One more time for the people back in the cheap seats. DCBService.com, where you will get everything or have access to everything in the previews catalog for a fraction of the price everybody else is paying. Now, it's a special DC month, carefully curated by us, because there's a trifecta going on. It may have uh, snuck under the wire, but we we wanted to make you aware of it. There's a Hill House trifecta at DCBService.com. You can get Basketful of Heads, The Dollhouse Family, and The Low Low Woods hardcover collections, all of which retail for $24.99. You can score them for $12.49 a piece. That's crazy. 50% off. What? From Black Label, it's the question. 
The Deaths of Vic Sage, hardcover, written by Jeff Lemire, art by the OG himself, Dennis Cowan, and Bill Sienkiewicz. Four-issue miniseries? This thing uh, retails for $29.99. This is you laughing. <laughs> I won't be paying that. I'll be paying fourteen ninety nine because that's half. And last but certainly not least, one of my all-time favorite writers at DC, which is after a certain point, you know, that became the home base. But before that, Steve Gerber was exclusively Marvel, right? Mm-hmm. This is written by the man himself, Steve Gerber and Mary Screnes, with art by Brian Hurt and Steve Bird. It's the Hard Time Complete Series trade paperback. It's It's a whopping book. It contains the original Hard Time series, 1 to 12, and season 2, 1 to 7, thirty nine ninety nine cover price. No way. You are paying half that. $19.99. DCBService.com does not mind late orders or order editions, and you get your books delivered right to your door. It's easier than going to the drive-thru for a hamburger. Trying to cobble together an introduction for this man is ridiculous. It's sure. it's also unnecessary. He's been everywhere from the 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 professional side, working at Marvel at a very young age, and then you just unravel the list of accomplishments at Marvel, and and then later DC, and then Tops, and 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 uh, a slew of companies. But he also was on the fan side of things in the early days with Jerry Bales, um, making it better for those who followed him, making it better for us. All of the things we take for granted, like conventions and original art and awards and message board communications and now social media communications, all of that was at least in part instigated by Mr. Thomas. He's he's omnipresent in comics, and he's a god. And we were, as David said, we were lucky enough to be able to talk to him for 30 minutes. Hopefully it will lead to a, a series of 30-minute talks. If if I had my way, I wanted to ask him about crazy. Mm-hmm. And there was no room for that in, in our 30-minute discussion, but I need to know all about crazy. How did it happen? Who instigated it? What were you thinking? How did you get Frank Kelly Freeze to do the covers? Like what? Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to shut up, and now we're going to listen to that. It's mostly Roy speaking, which is the way it should be. Yes. And here it is, Roy Thomas. Let's start off at the beginning. I have an intense fascination with the early days of comic book fandom, and you know you're crucial to that whole movement and everything that came after. Did you, back then, did you even have the slightest inkling that what initially began as a simple love of the Justice Society would morph into everything that came after? No, I mean, I just liked the uh, the comics, and I discovered, you know... That, I was fascinated by the fact that suddenly there were people around the country who had saved those old comics. I had saved them, too, but something happened to them along the way. My parents didn't throw them away, but I ended up with just two or three of them, and I had bought all of the ones from 45 on, from maybe at least number 25 on through 57, for example, just to that one title. And, you know, they, they all sort of vanished over the years without my parents, you know, throwing them away or me tearing them up. I don't know. So... The big thing to me was uh, just being able to get those old comics, you know, and 
Of course, the problem was they were available, but they were a few bucks a piece. You know, it might cost as much as $5 or $10 for some of them. And, uh, you know, I didn't have that kind of money being a college student at first and then a teacher and so forth. But um, Mike Bosberg, I think it was, did a cartoon that was in Bill Shelley's book, The Golden Age of Comic Fandom, showing him opening mail and said, you know, and, and his quote, which wasn't in the second edition, said, uh, it just seemed like I could have collected old comic books for the rest of my life. And, and that was the way I felt at the time. You know, I wasn't thinking ahead, you know, to any kind of movement, just, uh, you know, trade a few old comic books, uh, find out about the history of the stuff and and, uh, and that kind of thing. And, you know, we never, I never really thought ahead to trying to build anything. Uh, Jerry Bales, who, uh, he was the real organizer. He's the one that really got it all started. I was just on his coattails because we both happened to be in touch and be, uh, all-star fans. Right. But there was so many novel ideas that you guys instigated back then that we just take for granted today. Like the concept of original art, you guys would pass pages around at your, your various meetings and, and nobody really thought much aside from fans of comics uh, even the publishers didn't really care much for the original art back then you you guys instigated awards with like the alley awards and and you had the academy yeah, of that was about, well, I, yeah i, I like that because uh, I, I just felt like we were going to have a little group we may as well have some awards and uh so i said again jerry was the guy that was the instigator of most of the ideas the first real comics fanzine the first ad zine the first news zine uh, right even the ideas of doing conventions things like this but in the case of the awards, that was one of my few contributions. They suggested, I don't say he wouldn't have thought of it eventually. And uh, even, you know, naming the alleys because of the uh, fact that Alley being a caveman would have been one of the earliest heroes. But we never asked anybody's permission to use Alley Hoop. We just did it, you know. Right. Well, licensing was a lot more fluid back then, right? I'm, I'm sure they wouldn't yeah, have. Yeah. But uh, there's one line in Bill Shelley's book. I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, the Golden Age of Comic Fandom, when you were speaking with Julia Schwartz and mm-hmm. you wanted you wanted to get these issues of All-Star and he told you that uh, trading and selling of old comics could not be sanctioned by DC because the practice may spread disease. <laughs> Could, well, no, that wasn't Julie. Who was that? That wasn't Julie. That was, a, that was a, I don't know, that was a couple of years earlier before I was in touch with Julie. So it would have to be in the 50s sometime, middle 50s, 55, 56, somewhere in there, you know, uh, uh, before before I knew who Julie Schwartz was or anything. No, what happened is I, I wrote a letter. I'd written a couple of letters in, but, you know, they didn't have letters, pages, or answering. But I wrote a letter in asking, you know, did they have any comics or could they put me in touch with anybody who might be able to sell me or trade me, you know, an old uh, comic book so I could collect. I was thinking of All-Star. I may have mentioned it. I don't remember exactly what I wrote, and I don't have the thing. But what I got back was a... Uh, uh, a postcard from somebody at DC, whoever was was doing it, you know, whatever assistant or something. They didn't have that many, and he said, and, and he was wrote on there, "I'm sorry that we can't put people in touch, but the uh, but uh, the trading of old comic books might spread disease, you know? <laughs> so, so we can't do it." Yeah, it wasn't Julie, but that it was somebody up at DC. I don't know if he was that was the official policy or if he was making it up as he went along. Right. If they could only have uh, the foresight to see some of the comic shops in the seventies, they would have really been worried. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they'd have been running around saying, "Wear masks, wear masks." Yeah. <laughs> So, so Roy, this is Jason. Um, I'll just, you know, it's 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 fascinating when you talk about, um, you know, I think I've seen I've seen and read you interviewed quite a few times over the years, and I think you're very self deferential, um, and you even said like in terms of I got a lot to be humble about. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, 
to, to that end, you know, I, I think your origin story is is pretty remarkable in that you were working on the fanzine and then went to do a little work with with uh, which, you know, which well, now we know is DC. And then you ended up meeting with Stan. And, and, and next thing you knew, I think his story goes that weekend. You were writing uh, modeling with Millie, um, That's you it, know, yeah. similar to, to Vince's question. Totally not, I mean, totally not planned. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so how long how long um, after you started on that journey, you know, where you're, you're basically writing right off out of the gates, you know, how long before you realized the magnitude of, of, of what y'all were doing from a pop culture perspective and, 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 and how big Marvel and, and comics would eventually become. I never thought much about it because, you know, I mean, to me, it was really a wonderful thing to be in the comics industry, but I was aware of the fact that it was really, you know, a relatively small, industry i mean superman and batman and a few of the characters might have been well known and but you know but the rest of them weren't and uh, the companies weren't known comic books weren't especially respected or anything like that uh so um i don't know i i i, I never it's just one of these things that gradually you know grew i guess about the, by the time that marvel you know split off finally from uh, the dc distributor and things in the late 60s and that's been when stan took over in 72 it, you know, it was getting bigger and it was its own company it was no longer a part of a larger company marvel comics was a company then it wasn't relying upon the men's magazines or the movie magazines but still it was a t- you know a tiny little thing i went to parties or i went out with uh, you know girls or i met guys if they weren't into comics you know nobody was especially impressed some people thought it was kind of interesting some people you know would never mention it to me again. <laughs> Nobody would ever want to see me again. Uh, but of course, I was. But it, of course, I came from such a different generation from, say, the uh, the Stanleys and Jack Kirby's of the world that they they spent uh, a lot of their time, you know, practically being like, you know, Peter, you know, Saint Peter, you know, denying that they had ever been in comics or trying to not let people know that they were in comics, saying they were in magazines or they did illustrations or something like that. You know, uh, the generation that came along with me. Uh, and, and Archie Goodwin and Nelson Bridwell before, and with uh, Jerry and Lennon, Marv and Denny O'Neill and other people later, you know, we, we weren't ashamed of it. You know, some of us really, that would have been one of our highest desires would be in the comics industry, whether we'd ever tried to be or not. I mean, people like Lennon, Marv and these guys, they would just, you know, being in New York, they were just dying to get in the field. And if I had thought about it, I suppose I would have been too. I just didn't know, it just didn't seem to me that it was possible uh, because, you know, there's a few people out there in New York and, you know, I'm not going to get to do anything much out here in the St. Louis area, you know? Right. Right. And, you know, I, I think again, as you speak to you, you and your uh, counterparts being the uh, legitimate fans of the hobby and then, and then taking over as that second generation, I think about us being sort of the next generation below you and, and, and all of you as fans creating these works and it inspiring us. But I'm wondering um, when you ended up taking over for Stan uh, essentially as the, the main, scripter and storyteller for a lot of the big books uh, and then eventually as EIC. Um, I mean, how did you, was it overwhelming in the sense that, you know, when we look back on it now, um, we have, we have such intimate knowledge of how comics are made today and it's, it's so bureaucratic and it's so difficult even to, to write two or three books in a month uh, from a, uh, from a quality perspective, but yet stand. And then you certainly were, were just so prolific. And yet, you know, for many of us, they were some of our favorite comics of all time. Um, you know, what was the, what was the process like? I mean, was it just so much fun that you didn't even really think about it being so much work? I mean, it, did it get to a point where you said, this is just an overwhelming amount of work? I'm, I'm just curious what it felt like in the moment. 
Yeah. If you're, now, if you're talking about Stan and me, you're talking about two almost entirely different points of view. You know, sure. I mean, I may have been able to write like it, but he and I would not think very much alike in a certain level. We could communicate, but like Stan was never a fan. You know what I mean? I mean, there weren't even, when he was a kid, a teenager, there weren't even comic books really much. And if there were a couple of them, it would be reprint books, you know. So he wasn't a fan. You know, he talked about, once in a while, he would go kind of nuts. He would talk about, oh, you know, he liked the Captain America character as a kid. By the time Captain America came out, he was already working at Timeway. You know? mm-hmm, right. <laughs> I remember. He probably, I doubt if he ever read uh, even, you know, Marvel mystery comics uh, that first year before that, because uh, he would have been a teenager graduating from high school and so forth. And he probably wasn't reading comic books anymore, you know, at that time. Uh, so he was never a fan. He liked the medium. He liked comic strips, you know, and uh, maybe he saw a few comic books. He liked them. And he liked a lot of that children's literature and young, what would now be adult, young adult literature. But the thing is, I was of the next generation or so, you know, uh, 10 in 18 years in Stan's case, younger than than him, and by the time I was growing up, these things had existed long enough that I never knew of a time when they didn't exist. See, Stan did, uh, but I, but to me, you know, when I was coming of consciousness in the middle forties about any of this, they'd existed for a number of years. Superman and Batman were well-established characters, and in fact, the superheroes were getting kind of you know taper off over the next two or three years that I was reading them. Uh, so I had a whole different um, outlook on it, I suppose, than, than Stan did, uh, but. Uh, I, I was just, uh, you know, I just, I just liked the comic. I never really thought about them. I never thought about them as, as a, a field to get into. Uh, I used to write them and I would draw them and I would collect them and so forth. But I just, but I never thought about it being a, an area to get into, you know, the, that was just something I did, uh, to keep myself sane in the, when I was a teacher, you know, right, uh, right. I needed a hobby because I hated teaching a lot, uh, but I didn't have any other particular skills. So I figured, well, I'll just enjoy my hobby, you know? And, uh, that was about the last time I ever thought of comics or the interest in comics as, as a hobby. I hate now to hear, I don't even want to, I never use the phrase hobby because hobby always implies some little something that's over in the side, you know, and you just pick it up once in a while. But no, to me, it was more of an avocation. You know, it's something that I'm much more interested in than a lot of hobbies or something. Chess was a hobby, you know, uh, comics was an avocation. Sure, sure, that's fair. Um, you know, one of the things that I think we look back on fondly um, from afar is the idea of this romanticized setting worth the bullpen and, and you all working so closely together. Mm-hmm. So, so very different than how comics are created today, as you know. And full disclosure, yeah. um, you know, my my favorite artist of all time is John Buscema, who obviously I think is is so inextricably linked with you from a creative process standpoint. And I unfortunately never got a chance to meet him. So when you look back on on your collaborators, when you look back on the collaborators and, and who you worked with the, the, the closest, um, what do you remember most about about John and what was he what was he like as a as a as yeah. a partner and friend? Well, John was probably in many ways, my favorite collaborator. He was not like one of the, the, the close in, inventive because he was wonderful. He could tell a story. He could draw almost anything. Uh, and, and he almost always delivered what you needed. But, he, you know, he had no real interest in the material. He just liked drawing and, and, and so forth. So, uh, you know, and he liked making a living. And he could draw fast. Or he could make a little better living. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, he was such a strange guy. Everybody knows that he, how he talked about how much he hated comics. And yet he liked you know, he liked the great strips. He liked the, you know, Harold Foster's Tarzan and Prince Valiant, especially Tarzan, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, things like that, you know, and so forth. But he used to tell me, he said, he, he, you know, he said, uh, I don't think, he says, you say you got my 
some picture I gave you hanging on your wall. Says, I love Hal Foster, but I'd never have that hanging in my living room. You know, I said, well, I'd hang if I had something like that. I'd have it hanging in my living room. Uh, and in fact, I've had artwork by John Yosemite hanging in my living room. And you know, and if anybody thought that was weird or odd, well, they could just go jump out in the lake, you know, and they could take their <laughs> you know, or something, you know. But uh, you know, I, I just I uh, John was a wonderful collaborator because he could deliver, you know, what you had. He, he wasn't as inspired and going to add as much stuff as as a Barry Smith might or a Neil Adams might, but you know those guys were you know exceptional in their own directions. Even if uh, you know Barry in particular couldn't draw as well as John, uh, but you know they were all really super talented people. Uh, John was just a gruff guy. You know, I never discussed anything with him about the uh, the stories because you know, I knew he wasn't a fan. He wasn't going to hear anything about my thought processes. He just wanted to know what does he have to draw, you know, and and so forth, and uh, he didn't mind, uh, you know, uh, he got, he had started off thinking the uh, the idea of being given a vague storyline and then drawing it was a little weird. By the time he did it a little while, he got very upset when Jim Shooter and others would try to do uh, full scripts for him because he, he found it, you know, too constricting and too dull, you know, for him to want to do. Other people, you know, hated having to do that. So, but... It's hard to say because, you know, I didn't, I mean, I met John off and on, but we never really spent much time together. And when we talked, it was almost always, you know, all business. It was all about, you know, I'm going to, I'll get you a plot and we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And the the conversation with him, I remember the most probably was one time when I, I had to give him an idea over the phone from the office because so he could get started. And then I would, uh, maybe I'd flesh it out to him, but I'd get him started. So I, I told him, well, I got this idea. The Avengers go to, uh, Wakanda, the land of the Black Panther, who's become a member now. And there's this guy there who's taken over this gorilla god status. He's Mabaku the man-ape. I don't know if I had the name Mabaku made up yet, but that was the character. He wears like a white gorilla costume, and he's the other, like the anti-Black Panther god, you know, and so forth. And we started talking, you know, five, ten minutes, and I said, you know, they land there, and they go there, and he's, he's captured them, and this and that, and then they fight, you know, and so forth, and you know, and, and so forth. And I don't remember, it didn't get that specific. And I said, okay, so John, can you get started? And I says, oh yeah. I says, okay, well, look, I'll send you the plot, you know, this evening, tomorrow, I'll mail out a plot. He says, ah, that's enough, you know. <laughs> and then he just took it and he turned in this, uh, you know, this story, which, uh, you know, covered all the points, added, a, you know, the details, the choreography and so forth, and just as a beautiful, you know, job. And that character, of course, has now become one of the, you know, more famous characters that he had a hand in creating. And me too, probably. This is true. Hello. Now we're here. Um, I just wanted. It's I can't tell, yeah. yeah. It's said that uh, John was much more comfortable in the Conan universe than he was in the Marvel universe proper. That he yeah, would. He didn't like doing superheroes, and he hated the things he hated the most were Spider Man and the Fantastic Four. He thought those were some of the worst characters ever invented. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> And of course, nobody ever drew, besides Jack, nobody else ever drew the thing any better. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, 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 um, and uh, Spider, you know, remember he had to do a few issues of Spider-Man, which he really hated back uh, in that period in the late 60s or so, you know, but he, he did it perfectly, but he just hated it. He said, oh, God, how can anybody buy this stuff? He didn't like Ditko's work at all, you know. Uh, <laughs> he liked, he did admire, he did admire Kirby, you know. Uh, and everything and and so forth, but he, he wasn't an admirer of Ditko. He he, he would like for me and Kirby. He wanted people that you know really drew more, and uh, you know. And, uh, so he 
what amazed me was that when Tarzan came, since he had liked Tarzan so much by uh, Foster and that kind of thing, he didn't seem very interested in drawing Tarzan, though he did it very well. But he did like Conan. He had never heard of him, never read any of the books. But when I sent him uh, a copy of one of the Conan books uh, when he was going to be the artist of Conan from the beginning, he said, yeah, this is the kind of stuff I've, I've always been wanting to draw. You know, you can do anything, because he saw right away the possibilities. He had all the various epics of ancient and medieval history thrown together into one world. You had this one strong hero, and you had the... You know, all the the uh, good-looking girls running around. He didn't like drawing warrior women very much. He preferred the dancing girls, he said, to, uh, to, to Red Sonia. But, you know, but that world that, you know, at various times, sometimes he would just get better. I didn't like Conan. But, you know, but basically, 90% of the time, he would admit that Conan was the thing that he, you know, most liked. He eventually left it because he could make more money doing the superheroes as they, um, you know, as, as, different kinds of incentives came in and so forth. And uh, as Conan slipped a little bit, you know, in the early 80s, things, he, he kind of got away from it because he was, you know, mainly wanted to make a living. But as long as he's being paid the same rate, no matter what he did, he wanted to do, he was happy to do all Conan, as far as he was concerned. Right. The only thing he hated, he didn't like it when I gave him the L. Sprague de Camp books. He said, that guy's dull. He said, he can't write Conan. <laughs> He liked it when I did an original story, and he loved the Robert E. Howard stuff, but he saw right away that Elstring, the camp stuff, was too, you know, too moderate, too sane, you know, for, for his taste. Right, right. But well, he did it anyway, and it was not okay, but I made him do it, <laughs> but, uh, but he didn't like that stuff. No. Well, while we're on the subject of Conan, it, that, that's, as a Bronze Age fan, the Conan number one is a very important book for me for a number of reasons but not the least of which it is the book that's widely regarded as the beginning of the bronze age right and some people do it was like a marker of a sort i mean it wasn't intended to be of course right right but Just um another book we're turning out to try to make a little money you know yeah but you instigated the whole process of acquiring the the conan license at marvel correct well yeah but it was Stan, too. Uh, Stan, Stan and I, you know, Stan was getting the letters. He saw him. He paid so much attention to the mail, and he saw that people wanted to, he knew the name Conan. He'd never read any of it, of course, and uh, he got to know this term sword and sorcery, though he never quite understood what it was. He knew I read a little of it, not much. Never, I was never a big sword and sorcery fan, uh, and uh, I just like Robert E. Howard, I, I discovered. You know, I didn't like sword and sorcery that much by itself. Uh, I was a fan of this particular writer of it. Uh, but even at that stage, I hadn't realized that yet. And it was Stan, really, as much as anybody who was saying that, uh, you know, we should, you know, he's a, uh, the readers sort of want some of this stuff and, you know, so forth. And he told, he directed me. It wasn't like I said, let me do it. He, he directed me. He says, why don't you write a letter, a memo, a page, a couple of pages to Martin Goodman, the publisher, to say why we should, uh, license one of these characters? Because they, they weren't really saying make up your own character. They were, were saying license either Conan or one of the other sword and sorcery characters. So, you know, I wrote this memo to the publisher, and uh, the publisher liked it enough to authorize me to, uh, you know, offer a little money. And then, of course, we got we were going to do the great hero, the great sword and sorcery hero. We were going to do Fongar, you know, Lynn Carter's character, you know. Right. Decision finally to go with Conan, but that was because of the frustration. We couldn't get. I knew Conan was the one to get, but we didn't. We thought it would cost us too much, you know, because he was selling a lot of copies, you know of paperback books, so we hadn't bothered to contact him. Besides, Stan liked the name Fongor or Call. He liked those names better than Conan. Yeah. It starts with a C. That's kind of weak. Seems a kind of a weak letter compared to Fongor and Call, you know, and so many things. Brack, he would have liked any of those names better than Conan. But 
you know, I knew Conan was the, the real goods as I was by then finally actually reading it after not reading it uh, much, but I realized this guy was a good writer, you know, and so forth. And, uh, so I, you know, got frustrated because the, you know, Lynn Carter's agent on Fonger kept waiting for us to up the ante from the 150 bucks of an issue we were offering. And, uh, you know, we couldn't do it. The publisher says 150 bucks. That's it. So, I just felt frustrated after two or three months of waiting for the deal because we weren't going to be able to move and the agent wouldn't move. And then one day I saw a new Conan book and I realized that the introduction by DeCamp has the address of the literary agent for the Robert E. Howard estate, Glenn Lord, down in Pasadena, Texas. So I just dropped him in the line. Ah, you know, they, listen, you know, uh, if you, if we can't offer you much money. I upped it to 200. You figure, I'd figure out some way to make that up. But I said, you know, we can't pay you much money, but it might get to a wider audience. And Glenn was a swift guy, and he saw that was that was right. And uh, so he said instantly, okay, let's make a little contract, and you can do it, you know. And uh, next thing you know, uh, we, we next thing I go, I can walk into Telsa, okay, we got Conan. <laughs> you know, what happened to Fodgar? You know, well, you know, Fodgar didn't work out. We're doing Conan. You know, so. And Stan said, fine. And, you know, he never read any of them, but he was happy with them. Yeah, and comics were never the same again. I mean that uh, Conan's yeah. an an important character, yeah. and then Conan. I like looking at chains of causality. What link leads to another link, and so mm -hmm. you, you brought Conan in, which led to Red Sonia, and Robert E. Howard's Red yeah. Sonia is yeah. a mere shadow of the character that you created for Marvel. I mean, you took uh, well, two of his characters, like, we took the basis of it. Yeah. yeah, and you made Red Sonia, which yeah. is is much more in the cultural zeitgeist than the characters actually created by Robert E. Howard. So um, well, I, yeah. I just think it's incredible what you did with uh, a character not even linked, really, to Conan. You brought it into the Conan universe, and now, arguably, Red Sonja is as recognizable as Conan. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, and if they ever get a movie out of her, or a good movie, I think they, they might do that. But it was just... You know, it's just, it's, it, I wouldn't say it's just a job because I love my job, you know, most of the time. And I like the idea of it even when some unpleasant things happen. But, you know, once you get into that site, guys, once I was, you know, in the whole idea of working in comics every day, I was either in the office or I was at home writing or something and, you know, thinking about it a lot uh, and so forth. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, things just fall into place when, when you're, if you just come in once in a while and you're going to think about comics for 15 minutes or an hour, you know, you're not going to get anywhere. But if it's always kind of, you know, roiling around in your mind, then uh, you just, you'll get a bunch of ideas and some of them will be awful ideas. You'll never go anywhere with them or some of them will be awful ideas. You'll try them out, realize they're awful ideas, or at least the public will. And once in a while you hit upon something good. Uh, you know, in my case, I, I won the red-haired warrior woman even before I knew Red Stogie existed. You know, that, that, was, that was a weird coincidence. And it turned out that Howard had actually created a red-haired warrior woman in the story and a really pretty good name. And I, for some reason, I changed the spelling, which I think now is kind of a nice, inspired thing to do. At the time, I was just trying to differentiate her from the Red Sonya with a Y that was merely a supporting character in the story I adapted. Right. But at the time, you know, I, I was just thinking, it's just one more character that I could do something with because, you know, Belief, the Pirate Queen, she had her own st story arc, which was coming up, and then she has to die. Valeria, he didn't even really know whether, how you could backdate it, but didn't really meet her until he was like 30 or so, you know. And, you know, so I figured out, ah, you know, we got this black-haired woman, we got this blonde, let's get a redhead, you know. And here's and all of a sudden, I see this character, Red Sonia, and it's just, 
you know, perfect. It just it just showed really more than anything, not uh, you know anything on me so much as that I think that I was kind of in, got in tune with what Howard was doing. I mean, I was never going to be as important a writer uh, in any area as say Robert E. Howard was with Conan, but. You know, I, I got into his zone a little bit, I guess, you know, and, and, and suddenly find, you know, that I was thinking along the same lines as this guy that shot himself four years before I was born. And while my Conan wasn't exactly his Conan, he probably would have thought it was, you know, two miles because it would have been a comics Conan and all that. Uh, still, you know, within the list of what Marvel Comics were, you know, we managed to uh, kind of bring that in. And that kind of opened the door for more adaptations and more other kinds of material than just superheroes. Because, you know, I love superheroes, but, you know, you can't just do superheroes forever. You've got to expand it. So we tried not Brandak, and we had Conan, and, you know, and we, we licensed other characters, and then they went out and started creating other things. And, you know, uh, but you just have to keep ever, uh, constantly coming up with uh, uh, mutations of what you've done before because you can't keep doing the same thing over and over. You know, you've got to also, you've got to add to it and so forth. And as long as I was in there doing it, especially since I was working on it virtually every day of my life, either working on it or thinking about it, you know, I, I was fairly connected. Stan was the same way, and that's why he was so successful. And Jack Kirby, they, they were, you know, in their own ways, even if they weren't comics fans in the usual sense of the word, they were thinking about that stuff, you know, it was either on the, front or back burner of their minds all the time and in their different ways you know stan was more like the the, the public relations and let's build up comics and let's build up stan and let's build up marvel jack kirby was more of the you know super creative just get down and drawing stuff we all had our own different personalities but we contributed our little little bits here and there you know and i was you know, maybe the right person, but I was also the right person to come along at the right place at the right time. I was lucky that Mort Weisinger was such an ogre that I quit working for him. You know, <laughs> if I hadn't wanted to contact Stan to take him out for a drink, I would never have been offered a job at Marvel. You know, uh, I could have just been working at DC. I guess I'd have done okay there. I'm very happy that I went to Marvel right away because I think it was a lot more fun and probably, you know, more rewarding to me to go to Marvel than it would have been to stay around D.C. at that time. Influential. But I could be wrong. Who knows? Yeah, I think you're very humble in your achievements. I really do. I'm um, very humble. I, you, I, I have a lot to be humble about. Yeah. Um, had you not, had Mort not been such an ogre um, and tried to woo you back, I mean, if you look at the, the sales numbers, and I'm sure you knew, Marvel was clobbering DC at that time, and you going over to Marvel just put the the nail in their coffin. I I don't think they ever recovered from because you just took what was there and you catapulted it into a, even higher levels. I I think yeah, that was not a very good play by Mort. Well, it was just an accident. You know, I I, it, I don't think I was as valuable to Marvel maybe as you do, but I I did fulfill one thing for Stan. He needed to expand himself. There was only one of him. And, you know, he could only write edit so much, and he and he was having to write so much he didn't really want to write, but he just hadn't found... There were obviously good writers around, but he hadn't found any. He, they put some kind of ad in the New York Times, and a hundred people responded, but he didn't like any of them. So I was just lucky when I came along, and he just suggested I take this test. And we never discussed it, but I guess he liked it enough to hire me. You know, and I was available because of, uh, you know, Mort being such an ogre, or otherwise I would have felt too much loyalty to him. You know, plus Julie Schwartz would have wanted me to work for him. I, I would have probably not been, a, I wouldn't have been 
there to hear the siren call of Stan if D.C. hadn't been such an unhealthy work environment. <laughs> you know? So I was just kind of lucky, you know. Right. And, and, well, and that's, that's, that's without saying that Julie Schwartz and Mort Weiser weren't talented guys, but I'm, I'm lucky that they threw me out. Just like uh, Marvel's still lucky that, what, DC, DC was always throwing out good people, though, better than me. They threw out Jack Kirby, right? This is true. Yeah. Oh, well, my when favorite you... story of all time, I think, was, was, uh, was recorded in Mark Evanier's book on Kirby. You know, when somebody walked up about that lawsuit, you know, where Jack Schiff, the DC editor, was had the lawsuit with Kirby over the that space strip, you know, and then uh, and then as because because uh, he got mad at Kirby, Schiff, being a powerful DC editor, got got Kirby blackballed, you know, from DC, so he couldn't work there anymore. And Marvel was almost the only place he could go. And somebody and and Mark records this story of how somebody asked the artist Mike Sikowski, you know, one day was drawing says, uh, "Who won that lawsuit between Jack Schiff and Jack Kirby?" And Sikowski said, "Stan Lee." and comics were never going to be the same you know uh, uh because stan could jack wouldn't have done it without stan and stan couldn't have done it without jack but they were the you know the perfect marriage at the perfect time even though all they were really trying to do was make a living well now, now i have to ask since now we're going to go back to dc because you i have to thank you for uh making me care at, at my age at the time making me care about the old characters from the forties. Cause I, I, I would buy all-star squadron off the rack every month. And I, knowing your love for those, for those characters for that era, was there a lot of, um, were, was there a lot of heavy lifting on, on your, on your part or, or cause I know Rich Buckler left early on in the series and I, I tend to associate Jerry Ordway with the title, but how much love mm-hmm. did the artists have for these characters as well? Thinking about how John Bushima really didn't care for the properties at Marvel, but mm-hmm. were, were you the driving force behind that or, or, or was it easy to get yeah, the artist I mean, in step? Buckler liked them as old characters. We had no particular desire to do a world war two book, nor did Jerry Ordway, although they, they liked the, some of the characters and so forth. But the thing is, and they were good, you know, and those two were the most important people. Adrian Gonzalez did a good job of storytelling, but we needed Jerry Ardway to make him look right. And those were the most important artists, Buckler to get it started, and then Jerry uh, later on. And they did, you know, wonderful work and, and so forth, and I, I'm really uh, pleased with it. But the fact remains that uh, just because the way I was, I had come there, once I'd created the idea of All-Star Squad in my head, you know, you could ask Jerry, he probably did, <laughs> Richard Fierstall, I... Uh, there was just no question as to whose world it was. I mean, if, if anybody disagreed with Roy Thomas's conception of what the All-Star Squadron was, it was time for them to move on. We weren't going to have a discussion about it. You know? but, on the other hand, I mean, if, but on the other hand, I respected the artist. If an artist had an idea and a lot of them, you know, if, and they wanted to do this or that, you know, I, I'd listen to it because, you know, every, you know, there are a lot of good ideas around there and so forth. And, and I, I wanted to keep them happy, but, you know, the All-Star Squad was difficult because that was really my baby more than anybody else. There was no crying need out there at the time for uh, there to be a World War II, you know, superhero comic. You know, I mean, uh, Invaders had been okay. At, at Marvel had a, a huge hit. Nobody was crying for that. I just found, saw the excuse to do it because they'd already had a JSA book recently and it hadn't done that well. So I could take them off in a different direction and con them into it. And, you know, if it hadn't been for... Uh, I had trouble getting as good artists as things would have won, but you know, we could have gone on for a lot more years, but hadn't been for that damn crisis. Right. I was just going to say, yeah. So, so is that, yeah, one, was a nice book, but, uh, but 
cemented the end of my relationship with DC, basically, you know, for various reasons. And I mean, so, so was there some sort of, was there also some personal closure there with last days of the Justice Society of America for you writing that? Or was it just a, did it just make uh, sense? They wanted to get rid of it. They wanted to get, they sort of, I could tell they wanted to kind of get rid of the JSA. So I figured I may as well do it. And they said, oh, we'll never have it back again. I knew, you know, I, they sort of meant it, but they didn't know, you know, what would it take a year or so before they brought the stuff back, you know? Yeah. Those characters were, you know, those characters are bigger and more, they're more alive than any of us were, you know, because they, they go on forever. We come and we go and we die. But uh, those characters go on for Anyway, I got to take off now. Merely scratch the surface. Imagine if we had longer. That's the thing. I, I, 30 minutes was great. And I'm so glad we were afforded that much time. But I, I would love to, to pr- pick Roy's brain i yes it was our first time speaking with him so we're going to try and pick the big things on which to to talk conan avengers right i want to ask him about crazy mm-hmm. like the 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 little footnotes in in marvel history because as we said going into it it was difficult to find things to to ask him that wasn't covered in de- much much more depth in other places like alter ego and in the fan press, uh, the majority of Roy's very vast and varied career uh, has been covered in excruciating detail. <laughs> so yeah. it's tough. It's tough to find. Well, he's a writer, right? And he's also, as you noted, he's he's a fan, right? He's he he had a fanzine that he now runs, and he runs a fanzine now. So it's like it would make sense that he would. Be a, he would be a storyteller and would be on that record. But you're right. I was surprised because I don't consider like when we were setting this up. Uh, and by the way, thanks to John Samino, his his longtime manager for making this happen. Um, I was surprised because I don't you know, we've been doing the show a long time. And I feel like I listen to a lot of podcasts about comics. And I listen to, in particular, a lot of um, interview uh, podcasts, because even though we do occasionally do interviews, I wouldn't consider us an interview show per se. Um and I, I guess I just viewed it as Roy didn't didn't give too many interviews over the years. You know, I was like, oh, he doesn't. Roy never does podcasts. But, but like you said, Vince, but maybe not in its pure form. But he's been at a million cons, and a million people have stuck a mic in his face at a con and asked him questions. And then he, along with other historians, have documented so much of of his career that, uh, yeah, it is the stories have definitely been told in many cases. But I was also, as I'm sure you two are, really pleasantly surprised with how natural the conversation went. I mean, I, you know, it almost got to the point where since we knew we had 30 minutes, I was nervous that we weren't even going to get the few topics in that we really wanted to hit just because he was, right. he was giving us so many wonderful anecdotes and obviously we weren't going to cut him off. So, I, I mean, what do you think? We, we could probably spend another six, seven hours with the guy. Chatting, oh, probably. Geez, I was going to say 12, but yes. okay, we'll, we'll go six. Right. Yeah. I don't think there is a more trustworthy authority on this stuff out there. He he lived it. He was in on the on the ground floor at Marvel. Um, he experienced the heyday of, well, the end of the Silver Age, and then the bronze, and then the modern stuff. He saw the company explode. He saw Stan become, you know, not just Stan Lee. He saw him become Stan the Man, and it's just the 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 data that is stored within this man's mind is probably incredibly vast and i want it all right but i mean he did write the tashin book 
So I'm sure a lot of it, if most of it's in there. But still, just to get to hear, see, words are great when they're on paper. Yeah, they, they, they tell us things and we can interpret them in a number of different ways. But when you're sitting down and you're speaking with someone and you hear the inflection in their voice, like when he was talking about Big John Basima. Yes. Right? You pick, we picked up on a little thing, a couple things there. Right. Right? Yeah. You're not going to get that from the printed word. Right. That, that's, yep. I, I think it's, it's incredibly important to, to spend time with For um, sure. the, the, the greats of the medium because the, they, they have lots of secrets. Mm. Yeah. Wasn't it refreshing how self-effacing he is? Yeah, I you know I didn't want to embarrass him, but mm-hmm. I I did I'm thinking he's 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 speaking about Stan and you know uh, Stan's uh, achievements and I'm thinking you're my Stan. Roy Thomas is my <laughs> Stan, right? Sure. Cuz I was born in in 65. I didn't really start reading Marvel until 71, 72. And mm-hmm. the name that I mean, yes, we had Stan's bullpen bulletins and, and and all that, but the name I kept seeing over and over is Roy Thomas. And then once the Marvel magazine started, and Roy's name was all over those, I was like, okay, this is the guy. I I, right. I would look for Roy Thomas's name in the same manner that older fans would look for Stan's name. So yeah, he's my Stan. I'm not I'm not ashamed to say it. No, and and you shouldn't be. No, um, but I didn't I, want him to probably take it, you know, because he is very humble. I didn't want to want it to be a thing. We did uh, a few years back. I think we even did it. Um, well, I'm not sure if it was when we were in person together, but I remember we did an episode a few years back where we did a Mount Rushmore of comics, mm-hmm. and uh, Roy was not on any of our Mount Rushmores because it was it was all of comics. But we did speak of him as a honorable mention or someone worth considering. But I was because of of, of our chat with him this week. I thought, well. He's got to be on the Marvel Mount Rushmore, though, right? Like Stan, Jack, and Roy are the three, like three, right? And then it's who's the fourth, right? The four, yeah. I mean, the fourth would probably be be Ditko um, for for a lot of people, sure, uh, Not, or, I mean, yeah. or or no, John Romita. But um, yeah, right, right, yeah. But yeah, I would definitely put. I think we can blame Roy for making a lot of us, especially people who are our age, um, anywhere from 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 Vince to Jason's age. I think we can blame Roy. For, for turning us into comic book fans. And I know he had, he really enjoyed writing. And, and um, in one of the alter egos I dug out and was reading, he was talking about how much he loved writing. Uh, he could, you know, go into the office a couple times a week. He didn't have to go in every day. Uh, kind of followed Stan's working um, model. But it was when he became editor-in-chief that uh, he wasn't, so in love with that bit, that end of, of the business. He really enjoyed writing. And, and there are many reasons why I would vote for him to be on the Marvel Mount Rushmore. I mean, he was the second Marvel editor-in-chief following Stan. He, he, he edited a bunch of books, so he was able to take characters that, um, that the characters we know and love today, he, he, he helped nurture them because when he's editor-in-chief marvel's been around for five six eight ten years i mean it's not like he's he's not there now where you know the company's been around for for half a decade half a century and and it's like you know he's just picking up where the people he was he was there pretty much as close to the start as you can be if you're not stan and jack so um he is without a doubt on on the mount rushmore as far as i'm concerned yeah you know uh remember that book by sean howe marvel the untold story yes 
Yeah, I mean, we we talked about that. It was a a, a great read for for people that grew up at that era, for, like we all did. And um, when when we when I knew that we were going to have Roy on, um, I did come across Roy actually a few years back when the book came out, uh, penned very detailed notes about the book, particularly as it related to his mentions in the book, and um, basically fact checked the book. Um, and it was fascinating because because he, in a very polite manner, uh, made quite a few counterpoints to the way Sean told the story, um, and and a lot of it related to the way it portrayed his tenure as editor and what happened subsequent to that. Like he claimed, I and and I do remember the book, but I don't remember all the details. But I, I remember in one of the points Roy made was that um, uh, I guess Sean credited Roy with the idea of breaking up editorship after he left because it was just too hard for one person to do and too much of a drain. And Roy said that's not at all how it happened, that he yeah. that uh, it was Stan's idea uh, and that he acquiesced and he didn't really care one way or the other because he was done. He just didn't want to be the editor anymore. But once he got out of being an editor, he didn't give a two shits about how they edited it after that. So, you know, there's little things like that. Like he has such an incredible recall about all these little nuances. And I guess it would make sense because it was his life, right? I mean, and, he... and it's, it's, so it's, it, all right. So I know, um, we all pulled some things out, um, to, to discuss about Roy and, and, and I'm going to keep going back to this, this issue of alter ego number 70, because you, what you just mentioned, Jason is, is then Roy talks about this in this interview because uh, because this issue is all about Roy's time at Marvel in the 70s and he um, they they had it set so that um, Marv Wolfman was in, was basically the editor-in-chief of the um, I think it was the magazine line and it was um, was it Len Wayne who was in charge of, uh, of of the color comics so so yeah so they did I don't know if they were each called editor-in-chief but but yeah it's very similar to and again i mean this this interview is from like 2007 mm-hmm. sean's book is, is a few years after that but um yeah it's all it's it's still one of those and, and you tell it, it all plays out that way on 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 how it how it's explained with with how he's explaining it but yeah it was it, it and and I, for, I completely forgot about that because I, I i forget that um like i might have I, I knew at one point that roy was the second editor-in-chief and i know that there weren't that there was there was there was a few people uh, jerry conway had it for like three weeks i mean there, there were a few people who who, who were editor-in-chief before jim shooter and and that's when i think of an editor-in-chief for marvel it's it's shooter because i mean he had it for like you know, nine years or so for like so it's it's at least nine years but he was visually as taller than stan but i he he just his him being editor-in-chief at marvel is is there's a long shadow there and and as important as Roy is to Marvel and he is very important my association with Roy pretty much began with DC because any I obviously wasn't reading the Kree Scroll War when it was coming out and and I read that years later and a lot of pretty much all of his Marvel work I read well after the fact so when I I I tend to associate Roy with DC, with specifically with, with with the Golden Age because of All Star Squadron, but that's it, it. But again, it's what first brought you to the dance. So this is one of those things where, um, again, I'm already going all over the place. But no, it, it's it's um, 
you were absolutely right in uh, in in the way the um the editor in chief positions were broken down. There have been uh, fourteen editors in chief since the inception, since Marvel's. Yeah. Okay. And and they're all you could probably name. I mean, if we if we had the time, not that it would make for great radio, but you could name them all. Yeah. The hardest one, and I wouldn't have gotten this one, uh, is Vincent Vincent Fago. Wow. Yeah. No, I wouldn't have either. He was too busy concentrating on the the soft drink. To <laughs> <laughs> shout out to Juggalos. Yep. But you got Axel, right? Obviously. Yep. CB, the current one. Conway, like you said. Tom DeFalco. Yep. Fago. Uh, Archie Goodwin. Yes. Bob, Bob Harris. Harris. Yep. Stan the Man, obviously. Casada, uh, certainly. Uh, Shooter. Joe Simon. Roy the Boy. Uh, Len Wein and Marvel Fun. Yeah. It's not a lot. I mean, considering you're talking about, what, a 60, almost, almost over 70 years, right? Yeah, because Stan, so Stan in the 50s, so we're, yeah, we're talking, yeah, over 70 years, right? Just about 70 years, I guess. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a long stretch. Well, uh, the Marvel Universe begins in 63, so. Yeah, no, I know, but Stan, Stan, yeah, so, right, so if we're saying 63, then we're talking, what, that's 37, so 57 years. It's still a good stretch. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. So is Shooter the longest tenured outside of Stan? I think so. Because, yeah, I don't think... Because I feel like Casada was the EIC for a long he time. He was... He, well, he and he and Jimmy were, were pegged to do Marvel Knights to yeah, have their own imprint. EIC then. Right, exactly. Yeah. So it was... He he and... Um, he was EIC, I think, when, when James came up with uh, the Ultimate line. And that was, that was around 2000, I think. 2001, maybe. So I think... I think Shooter might just eke him out by a smidge. Okay, I, I feel like... Uh, okay. So, Casada became EIC officially in 2000, and he advocated the role in January 2011. So, more than a decade. Uh, Shooter... Shooter was 11 years? And you know, this Shooter's been the editor-in-chief of a lot of places. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. The man is defiant. Um, so, so when... Alright, so, so Vince, you... Um, what issues of, of, of Alter Ego did you um, pull out? Uh, 136 and 139. Anything special about those? Yeah, they're, just... they're, they focus on Roy. Well, um, okay. Specifically, Roy's uh, freelance uh, work during the 90s. Oh. It, it was the Conan cover that got me to pick it up uh, on 139, and then I realized that it was part two, so I traced it back to 136. And uh, the meat of the interviews in 139... I th- it's, it focuses mainly on well, you no surprise uh, that Roy went back to Marvel in uh, the '90s and pretty much spent most of his time with Conan. That's not mm-hmm. a shock, and that's what I was saying uh, when doing this. I would be going through the the interview and and Roy had hit a book, and I'd be like, ah, oh, I just I completely forgot about that, or I don't even know that that existed. So I would write it down on a little piece of paper post-it note or, or uh, jot it down in in you know uh, digital format on my phone or something and then when we went to the shows i would look for that book in the back issue bins or the cheapy bins uh we don't have that luxury right now because there's no conventions so as i'm going through these issues of alter ego i'm, I'm jumping on my comic shop and i'm ordering stuff and i'd hit another book and i'd order it like conan the adventurer had no idea that book uh, came out, and most of it features art by uh, Raphael Kayanan. Raphael's great, 
And mm-hmm. is that how you say his name? Kayanan? It sounds right, right? K-A-Y-A-N-A-N. Kayana. There's a, a Roy gets into it in the in the Alter Ego, obviously, where uh, he had done some work with Raphael, uh, most notably the the tail end of Savage Sword, which are ridiculously expensive. By the way, uh, wait for the the Marvel Omnibus. Uh, they're like twenty bucks an issue. There's mm-hmm. there's no way I'm paying twenty bucks for a Savage Sword. Anyway, so he did a bunch of stuff with Raphael in, in Savage Sword, and then when they started this. Um, Conan the Adventurer, he and Raphael, you know, he's like, okay, I've worked with this guy before. He's great. A little bit in the Barry Windsor Smith mold, which is uh, pretty appropriate, right? And then they, for for whatever reason, either Raphael needed a, a breather or they took him off the book midway through the run and they they re- uh, replaced him with Watkiss and the readers left. And then when Raphael came back, and and Roy told him, he's like, well, you don't want to put Watkiss on this book. He's a talent, sure, but his style is very much different than Raphael's style. So if you put him on the book, the readers are going to get a little bit, get their panties in a bunch, and I'm, you know, probably going to lose some readers, but they did it anyway, and that's exactly what happened. So by the time Raphael came back to the book, the, uh, the epitaph for the series was already written. Uh, but I didn't have any of those, so I ordered them. What the hell? And then it goes into Roy's time at Tops, and I completely uh, did not take account as it was happening back in the day just how much work Roy did for Tops. A ton of stuff, like he did the the Secret City saga that uh, they that catapulted out of a couple of Jack's uh, drawings. Basically, that's what happened. They got bombast and Night Glider in those drawings that Jack did, and they built a, a story around them. Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, Dracula. He did uh, the uh, Frankenstein miniseries. He did Frankenstein Dracula War miniseries. X-Files, Xena. Like, he did a lot of work for Tops. Uh, but no, it's just, it's so comfortable and, and cozy to listen to Roy, or in this in this case, read Roy, answer all these questions about the, the old times. Because, again, th- that was, I mean, our golden ages started at different times, but my golden age of comics is the bronze and Roy was everywhere. And to hear him just wax lyrical on all this stuff, it just, it, 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 it it makes my day because it, again, it brings us back to that time. Uh, maybe that's why I, uh, appreciate the man so much because he's, he was the nugget in that, that era at, uh, started out Marvel and, and Roy was the man. So why wouldn't he be special to me? Right? Absolutely. I had no yeah. uh, back then. I had no love for DC. Mm-hmm. I didn't start reading DC until Burn came on Superman. <laughs> uh, Seriously? No, I'm. I'm. I don't. I mean, I didn't start reading DC until <laughs> until yeah, fifteen years ago. So yeah, yeah. No, when 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 John uh, did the you know pulled the Kirby and went to the opposition, I followed him. And started reading Superman. And then from there, I, I investigated this crisis thing. And, you know, whatever. Uh, I, it was a lot of work. And, and much of it, most of it was fun. But I don't have nearly ex- the experience uh, with the DC shared universe as I do the Marvel. Uh, I also think, because we jumped into this conversation about Alter Ego, we, we did touch on it during the interview. But, um, I mean, just for those that aren't clear, um 
1999, Roy was approached by Tomorrow's Publishing to restart Alter Ego, yeah. uh, which he did. And to this day, uh, Alter Ego continues to come out, and Roy is the, uh, the editor. Yes. Yeah, you should do yourself a favor and go over to Tomorrow's.com, T-W-O-Morrow's.com. I think there's a sale going on now. You can get uh, a, a nice chunk of Alter Ego for like 40% off. It, it, every issue is well worth the money. Because chock full of facts and uh, anecdotes, but there's a ton of it. So uh, you you may pay whatever, like four bucks, five bucks for an issue of Alter Ego, and it'll take you a good week to read it. Oh, God, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and <laughs> I've had some of these for years, and I've, yeah. I've barely got through halfway yeah. through them. Um, and you're absolutely right about the anecdotes, because, and again, I mean, I'm, I could have just, we could do a whole episode on, on this one issue, but... And, and again, it talks about Roy. It, it shows Roy's honesty, and, and that um, when um, when Conan came to Marvel, um, he uh, Gil, Gil Gil Kane had told Roy that he wanted to do Conan originally rather than his name is Savage as his first black and white book, um, but uh, his financial backers wanted a modern day thing, so he went with uh, Savage. But Ron Goulart has often reported Gill saying to Gill has said that Gill gave Roy the idea to do Conan, but that's not really how it happened. The readers gave Marvel the idea because they kept writing to Marvel saying, you know, we want Tolkien, we want uh, Robert E. Howard, and, and you know, and, and and in that case, they they wanted Conan, so they wanted Marvel to do to license these properties. Um, but again, if if Gill is telling Ron Goulart something, and that's Goulart is reporting it as as that's how Gil saw it. You know, it's just one of those things where, and 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 luckily Roy is there to say, you know, I, I, I get why Ron would say that, but actually this is, and and I I love the fact that that Alter Ego is is around, so we get because um, there 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 are what did I say? There's three sides to every story: yours, mine, and the truth. And and here at least you you may you could go through life thinking that, you know, Ron Goulart says Gil Kane gave Roy and Marvel the idea to do Conan, and that may only be partly true. But but here's Roy to say, no, I think this is more or less, you, know, you could take both of our instances of, of how the story went and draw your own conclusions, but but this is how it is. And 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 again, because Roy was there, there's there's it, it's not somebody telling you secondhand or third party and 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 I mean I, I and and it 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 absolutely blew my mind when earlier this weekend uh or late this weekend when we talked to roy and we were discussing amongst ourselves what what we would uh discuss on the show or bring to the show to uh spotlight roy and i fell completely out of my chair when jason whipped up without some alter ego issues because alter ego is is base is is the paper version of dvd commentary and, oh and, you're and not it, kidding and, me yeah it blew my fucking mind that my man's like yeah here's some alter egos that I, i'm like bro stop i don't even he found them I, in a bag somewhere i was or like they, did, i might i i <laughs> that's hurtful it's so i mean but but why did you why, why did you pick those issues jason well i mean uh, i've always been a fan of tomorrow's uh i used oh, to sure. buy back i used to buy back issue uh, love back issue like I I'm getting, I'm getting this month's. I'm getting the issue uh, in uh, in this month's previews because it talks about the. It's it's Marvin and George talking about the Titans. Like you guys alluded, I mean, it was one of those things. Like like many things, I I, I bought it. I mean, for years through DCBS, I, I bought it every month. But then 
uh, it just so often I wouldn't get around to reading it and it just was piling up and I thought, well, so at some point I stopped doing that. And then like Vince said, every now and then I'll go in and check out the sales. And, um, I mean a lot in the last few years, I've bought a bunch of them digitally. Um, but no, I think it's great. I mean, uh, I don't know. I don't mind reading about history. Um, I guess I, you're right. I guess it is somewhat comparable to liner notes and stuff, but, but maybe be, it's cause it's comics, I guess. Like, uh, obviously I, I do a podcast with you, with you fools six times a month. So I do very much care about the underpinnings and, and, sure. and, uh, and back office machinations of comics. Like I care about how the soup is made with comics, but I don't really care about anything else in that regard. Um, uh, I, I just, and, and also these, these like tomorrow's and back issue and, uh, alter ego, they, they, they are fanzines. Yeah. But they're really often like from the horse's mouth. I, I find that a lot more interesting. I just don't particularly care for, like other fans perspectives. Like I never was into, I know you guys is sacrilege, but you know, I was never into the, 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 the reader submissions and letters pages and stuff. Just didn't, didn't really care what other people thought about the comics, but, uh, but either way, um, it is what it is. I, I, um, the two issues that I wanted to mention tonight, uh, were, uh, issues 15 and 153. Uh, 153 is dedicated to Flo Steinberg. And, uh, you know, I, I know when she passed a few years ago, we talked a bit about her on the show, but um, I'm always I'm, I'm fascinated by the way that we remember people um, and how it morphs over time. And I would think that if you were to ask the average hardcore comics fan how long Flo worked at Marvel uh, for Stan, I would think you'd get guesses somewhere between 15 and 20 years. Like most people would probably think she was his right hand person uh, for the majority of his tenure as the lead at Marvel, and uh, I, I know I know you guys know this, but that just wasn't true. She worked there from sixty three to sixty eight. You know, I mean that's it, five years. Now, now it was a very very important five years, and she was basically the only other full time employee for a period of that time. But but nevertheless, I mean she was not no longer a full time employee at Marvel by the time Roy basically became a big part of Marvel. Um, so in the issue in 153, Roy uh, opens it up by just giving his thoughts about Flo. Um, he he called her one of his, his true best friends in comics. Um, they became fast friends when he got to Marvel and stayed in touch after she left. And, uh, and he and his wife, Dan, uh, remained very close to her. Uh, as he moved to California and then South Carolina, they, they, Felt a little bit more out of touch, but he would still talk to her on a semi-regular basis a couple times a year. And, uh, you know, and it's just interesting because um, she she had this incredibly high pitched voice. Uh, and in one of the uh, in one of the, the, the articles in this issue, uh, it recounts her hiring. Sal Brodsky uh, was interviewed at some other point and they they transcribed that. And um, as he tells it, Flo, uh, Stan put some generic ad in the paper for a corresponding secretary Flo was one of the first, if not the first person to show up for the job. And for some reason, Stan had Sal talk to her first. Sal talked to her, liked what she had to say, uh, went in to tell Stan, I I think she's pretty good. Why don't you talk to her? And Stan being Stan said, oh, if you think she's good, let's just hire her and let's not interview anybody else. And he did so, told her she had the job. And then she came in to meet Stan and thank him. And Stan heard her voice and like was apoplectic because (laughs) – her job was going to be answering the phone. You know, I mean, she was going to be the person to answer the phone every time someone called Marvel. 
And he thought, how is this super high pitched, like glass breaking <laughs> voice going to work as the corresponding secretary? But it, you know, the rest is history. She obviously did it and did it really well. And um, it was just interesting because uh, another piece in the book talks about the origin of uh, of Comic Cons and credits a con in New York in 1964 as the first. And this ties back, Vince, to your point, which I thought was extremely uh, pertinent in the interview with Roy, where you credit Roy with being a big part of, of creating fan culture, or at least being at the epicenter of that. And this article in Flow was interviewed for this article, talks about how um, Marvel was really at the epicenter of, of comic fan culture, too. Because even though DC predated it a lot, it was the it was the FF and the wild success of the early Marvel stuff that created this maelstrom of fans. And so they have this con in 64 in New York at a hotel and Stan didn't want to go because he didn't want to not. He was too busy. He had deadlines to make. So Flo went and she was the Marvel representative and she became the goodwill ambassador, which is how a lot of people think of her now. And um, and she ultimately quit in 68 because they were getting thousands and thousands of pieces of fan mail every week. And it was her job to respond to every piece of mail individually and personally. And. She was making $60 a week, and she asked for a raise. So this is five years into her career. She asked for a raise of $5 a week, and they said no. So she quit. (laughs) Isn't that nuts, dude? That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. And then she'd go on, obviously, to do lots of awesome things. I mean, you know, one of the – really the the first – the first – well, driving forces of of underground comics in terms of being a publisher and – Yep, uh, and then Eclipse, uh, and then and then she came back to Marvel in 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 a semi retired basis and was a proofreader for twenty years before she passed away. Um, but uh, and and she you know I, she definitely was full of life. Uh, bluntly speaking, um, she was a beautiful woman. I mean, she was very very attractive, uh, and uh, and and apparently by you know by all these articles recounting her very very, uh, especially for the time, not at all afraid to voice her opinion. Uh, or to put someone in their place. Um, but she was, um, and then I guess they went through a litany of, of replacements for her because she was irreplaceable. So um, it was just like a revolving door for a long time after that until they got big enough. I'm sure they just had multiple people handling the jobs or whatever. But um, yeah, so uh, it was interesting because she, I feel like she's a huge personality um, and you hear the name and you're thinking, oh yeah, sure. But then I didn't really know a lot about her history with Marvel or how she got there. And, and again, I was even surprised by how short-lived her, her time as as a key player really was there. Um, and then the other issue, um, which it, you asked me why I chose the ones I chose, Dap. I mean, the other issue, 15, should be no, no, when you, when I tell you what the issue is about, you'll understand. It's the John Buscema issue. Mm. Um, it, Buscema had, had passed just – so uh, like I said, tomorrow's – or had – Still restarted the book, uh, Alter Ego, in 1999. Issue 15 is in 2002, uh, and it's the year that John passes away. Um, so it recounts, from a lot of different people's perspective, it recounts John and, and, and his career. Um, and probably the most interesting part of it for me was uh, a transcribing of John's appearance at San Diego Comic-Con. He did two panels at the 2001 San Diego Comic-Con um, they were his last public appearances and Mark Evanier moderated the panel, the panels. And this was a transcribe of, uh, of, of their, their main panel, the conversation that he had about his career. And, uh, um, it's, listen, it's, it's just like Roy alluded, John suffered no fools. 
especially at that point in his life where he was long gone from comics. He um, he he didn't mince words. Uh, he he made it very clear that he thought superheroes were dumb. <laughs> he thought, and I think the quote was, uh, I, I know a lot of you in the audience aren't going to like this, but I, I've, I always thought it was the stupidest thing ever to have a grown man flying around in his underwear. <laughs> um, and, you know, and it was just, it's just remarkable considering how much he did in superhero comics and how little he, he enjoyed it. And, um, uh, you know, Vince, you'd appreciate because at one point Buscema talks about how he never thought he was good. Like, cause Evanier says, well, you got started early. When did you know that you were going to stick? And John said, never. He said, I, I can't tell you how many times in my career I handed in work and thought, well, that's it. Editor's going to call me and tell me they're done with me. And Evanier's like, come on. I mean, I can understand you thinking that at, at, at early parts of your career. But at some point, you realize you were John Buscema. Like, you were markedly better than most of the other people in the business, if not everybody. And Buscema's like, I, you're, Mark, I mean, you know, ask other artists. That, that's, I never once thought about myself that way. I, I never looked at something I didn't thought I couldn't do it better if I had another chance. Um, wow. So, you know, like the suffering artist, you know. Um, and then he was asked, well, you know, you, you inked yourself sometimes, you didn't get yourself other times. And, uh, it reminds me a lot of, of what we hear from modern artists today who often do ink themselves now because technology allows it. But John said, listen, if I had my way, I would have inked myself always because I was the best at it. Um, but I, I couldn't, didn't have the time. And so I had to let other people do it. And it was very frustrating. And, when pressed who he who Evanier was trying to be a gentleman said, well, I'm not going to ask you to tell me who you don't think did a good job, but maybe tell us who you thought did a good job. And uh, I'll do a little quiz who, who and you may remember, maybe you've read the article, so you know this. But who do you think he said were his best inkers? I don't recall. No guesses. Uh, no, uh, I can tell you who his brother thought was his best inker. Who Sal thought John's best inker was? No, who Sal thought who Sal's best inker was. And oh, okay. Sal said the best inker for me is myself same thing yeah. well that i'm sure john would have said that mark specifically said who 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 that did ink you would you say did um, a good job i want to say he would probably say tom palmer yep tom palmer was number one okay um i don't frank chicoy did a lot but i don't frank know frank chicoy if... was number two okay very good the third's gonna be obvious when you, when you hear it because you're like oh of course alfredo sal his brother. Oh, yeah. He probably <laughs> did. He probably didn't like Alfredo all that much because Alfredo kind of eclipsed his work a lot. He he actually doesn't name names who he doesn't like, but he said the majority he didn't like, and there was one in particular on Conan that he had a real problem with. <laughs> so, uh, sorry. Conclusions. See, yeah, I'm I won't be mean, but um, I acknowledged John when Alfredo got his work. Before that, he was the guy who did the Avengers, which I didn't really care for, right? But once uh, John got on Conan, I took note of him. And then once Alfredo inked John's work, I was like, all right, this is a match made in heaven. So, I mean, it's different different perspectives, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, he said, uh, Evanier asked him how because he was known obviously to be very fast, how, how fast he actually was. And he said he, he could comfortably uh, fully pencil three pages a day. <laughs> and and uh, if he was just doing breakdowns, he could do up to seven a day. 
and I just thought, wow, I mean, what a world, right? <laughs> like, what, what a world. Wow. I mean, yeah. Um, you know, but uh, no, it was it was it was great. It was really long because it was like a, probably an hour hour long panel. Um, and, and the thing that's awesome about Alter Ego, and we give have to give Roy and his partners credit for it, is that these are these these are issues are uh, often textual interviews, but they're they're just inlaid with just tons of art, tons and tons of art yeah, uh, with yeah. with. And and so reading these is is a far more enjoyable experience than than us speaking about what we read because you just see all this art and there's all these editors notes regarding the art that are pertinent to the conversation. So um, it's it's a real treat. It it really is. And um, you know and, and as as Roy alluded to us briefly in our chat, uh, he he John said that he very much enjoyed his time working with Roy on Conan, um, and actually said that he was pissed off that they didn't ask him to draw it at first. And he goes, yeah, they asked some other guy to do it. And Mark Andrew goes, some other guy? You mean Barry Windsor Smith? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, Barry, that's right. He's like, and I was like, whatever. You know, I thought they should ask me first. But he's like, but, you know, but then they asked me after. And at first I was upset, but then I figured, ah, I want to do it anyway. So I did it. <laughs> Just seems yeah, like John was a curmudgeon, dude. Like, he, he really with... did. Because, yeah. that's, I, I, again, um, when we... Uh... He he talks about okay so so Barry Smith was looking for work um, number one did very well uh, let's see so there were people who hated the idea that Barry Smith was the artist and felt it should have been someone like if not Frazetta then Bernie Wrightson in particular a couple of people have suggested Frank Bruner who was just starting out as well uh, Bernie actually did a couple of sample Conan drawings. He was just becoming a pro at that stage, and those drawings are very nice. I was more enthusiastic about his work than Stan was, but it was Stan's decision. Um, so I suspect Bernie thought I was down on him. I honestly don't recall if we saw his Conan drawings before or after we decided on John Bushima as the original Conan artist. Jim Amish says, and then Bushima didn't work out, and you couldn't get Gil Kane for the same reason. He says, yeah, Goodman said they were both too expensive. He wanted to get back that $200 an issue. I had over-enthusiastically offered Glenn Lord for the Conan rights, so we had to get somebody cheap. Mm. And and here was uh, Barry Smith, yeah. deported, I'm sorry, report, was... deported back to England because he'd been working in the States without a green card and looking for work. The immigration people gave him 24 hours to leave the country to, or be locked up. So he uh, so Conan the Barbarian became a working gig. Um, but then uh, I, I guess Roy's epics were, were, were a little bit... Um, too much for Barry to keep up with, or, or he just got tired of it. And then, um, and then I know there there was there was a Gil Kane issue or two uh, before Bushima came on as as the regular pencer. But yeah, there were. It it wasn't just that. I'm, I'm sure they would have loved to have John at the start, but um, business being business. Um, Evanier counter like when John complains about that, Evanier offers that point that oh so, sweet okay yeah he's like oh well wasn't it because of the fact that they had to offset how expensive it was to license going in and then oh. like, oh, i wouldn't i wouldn't remember that but okay. um and then as an original art collector because you know again back well this was 2001 so i guess the oa market was pretty pretty healthy then uh still ridiculously better time to collect then than it is now but but obviously not like the time when people were buying frank miller pages off the off the floor for 50 bucks um so the audience was asking questions and they asked him about uh how they've been fortunate to collect pieces of his art over the years, including a lot of like random sketches and like on scrap paper and, and whatever. And, and if he, you know, if, if they could, if he could speak to that. 
And again, I thought Vince as an artist, you would appreciate because again, Buscema comes off as kind of like a dickhead a lot, but but like he was definitely like a, a an artist for the artist's sake. And he said, "Oh, well, like I said before, uh, I draw seven days a week. I love drawing. Uh, I don't want to be melodramatic, but I love drawing. If I don't draw for a day, I'm upset. Uh, I draw on scraps, on writing paper, toilet paper, anything I can get my hands on. I draw, and it doesn't matter. I don't have any preconceived ideas about what I'm going to draw." I start scribbling and something comes to my mind. It may be a guy sitting at a table playing checkers with a volleyball. I don't know. There are times I want to draw a horse with a guy on it. And then the guy says, yeah, you know, and it's interesting. A lot of your art that I've bought have, uh, have drawings on the back of the pages, you know, like other <laughs> sketches. And he's like, ah, yeah, backs of the pages. Why do I draw on the backs of the pages? Because I hated what I put on the front of the page. <laughs> so, like... <laughs> You know, I just thought it was great. I mean, um, and then and then from there, there's uh, there's Roy's perspective on John's career. Uh, they go. There's a, the majority of the of the issue is actually Roy speaking about all the different books that he worked with John on, and then there are little interstitial quotes from other people that are involved in the books uh, and little blurbs about the books. Um, and then there's an interview with Sal about his brother and how John got him into the business and how John always said that Sal was a great artist, but he never thought he was meant to be an artist, that he really was meant to be an actor. Uh, and he felt like he actually felt bad that he coaxed Sal into getting into the business. Cause even though he was again, successful at it, he thought that he was meant to be an actor cause that's what he always wanted to do. Um, yeah. Uh, Stan Goldberg talks about, um, uh, Buscema in an interview from a few years before that they republished, I guess, uh, and then there's a lot of very touching tributes. Because, um, again, this is pretty much an obituary issue. It was a few months after he passed. Uh, Stan Lee, Gene Colan, Ramita, Infantino, Ordway, Kubert, Erwin um, uh, Hassan, Flo Steinberg, Herb Trimpe, uh, and a bunch of others give uh, paragraph obituary pull quote type things about their time with John or what they thought of him. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it, it was – I mean, that was, that was a treasure. I really enjoyed that very much because I, I do – uh, as I as I've said multiple times now that the Roy, the Roy John pairing for me was the pairing that made me fall in love with the Marvel universe. So, um, and, and I, obviously I wasn't old enough to read this stuff as it was coming out, but but when I when I did start collecting and fell in love with with those characters, I did go back and and read a lot of that stuff, and um, you know, and, and that's I mean certainly the Avengers wouldn't wouldn't be my my favorite team if it wasn't for them i mean that's when i think of the avengers that's really what i'm thinking of is their 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 first run kind of set in much like the fantastic four for you vince sits in, like when i think of the marvel universe for me like all of the the characters i love the most and everything and I, we'll put the the mutants in their own thing because they're kind of their own thing and they came later um you know all those characters and all those first moments and interactions were all in in their hands and well i mean in roy's hands in particular because he obviously wrote the avengers beyond John's tenure there, but uh, yeah, so. Yep, Um, and while we're tipping the hat, uh, of course, Roy is the uh, head honcho at Alter Ego now. It wasn't always that case. So you got to give it up for Jerry Bales for uh, instigating the magazine. And then Roy took it over uh, after a period of time. But uh, Alter Ego is Jerry Bales' baby. We have any other Alter Ego issues that we... uh... Did we, did we? I mean, were there any others? Or? The aside from um, the issue uh, number seventy, I also grabbed uh, number forty, which is a actually a flip book. One side, uh, Jim Amish talks to um, Russ Heath 
Uh, but the flip side, the reason why it caught my eye and I picked it up many moons ago was uh, there's a it's it's a Julie Schwartz and Gil Kane issue. It uh, it leads off with the uh, Julie Schwartz memorial service uh, from the morning of March 18th, 2004. There was a memorial service held for um, held for Juliet at DC. Um, but the uh, the reason why I had to have this was because you um, did Gil Kane speaks mostly about Lou Fine, Jack Cole, and Mac Raboy, but um, but of course it's it's Gil and and in all the interviews and uh, stories or anecdotes I've heard about Gil Kane over the years, he is not one to um, hold his tongue or he definitely has a way of of making you know how he feels about something. Uh, and apparently everybody is is um, is boy. Well, my boy, and there was. Um, Roy's got a lot, and again, going back to the issue with Roy in the seventies at Marvel, he's he's got he's got a few stories where he does have conversations with with Gil, and there was one where um, Roy was thinking about leaving Marvel for DC uh, the first time because he um, he wasn't um, he wasn't in love with uh, again with 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 being editor in chief, and he. Um, I, I think he um, he thought that 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 Stan wasn't uh, keen on him for whatever reason. But when um, apparently when when um, even before he became an actual editor in chief, and he was um, he was he was kind of promoted to to story editor, and um, and John. Verporten was production manager and Frank Giacoy got named. Uh, well, there may have never been an official title, but it was assistant art director. Apparently, Giacoy thought um, he should have been in a um, in a better and higher position. Um, I don't know if he thought he was. Um, and everybody compliments his inking and, and, and you know, appreciates that um, he, he, he's a decent enough draftsman. Uh but when it came to being an art director, it, pretty much everybody was kind of in agreement that that's John Romita's job to have. And um, and there was some there was some headbutting going on. And I guess where it was just like I the the story editor thing wasn't working for him, and he was it was hard to give people direction when in uh, on the org chart you're you're, you're kind of peers. You, if someone isn't working under you, then it, it's kind of hard to, to tell that person what to do. So, um, so he was like, I'll just, you know, I, I, I should just get out. I, I always had feelers from Carmine at, at DC and sometimes they were tempting. I like DC's characters. Maybe it was time for a change. And this was another time where I spoke to Gil, um, about something else important in my life. And, and I remember moaning the blues about it to Gil, uh, the same way he would do to me on other things. And Gil says, my boy, don't let it worry you. It'll all come to you. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And Gil says, well, look, you've got these three people. And he just analyzed it perfectly. He says, John Verputin doesn't count. He just wants to get the books out. He doesn't care how it happens as long as he can get the books out. So he's no threat. He's not ambitious trying to build an empire or anything. And Frank's a good anchor, but he's totally incompetent as an art director because he's never really worked at being an artist. He's always been an anchor. You know, he can't make it over the long haul. So... Gil said, all you have to do is hang in there a little while longer and everything will come falling to you just like you want. 
And Roy wasn't too sure, but a few days later, Stan went to Roy and, and he wasn't happy about the stuff that Frank was doing and, and he wanted to know, you know, why Roy wasn't writing the ship. And and Roy's like, dude, he he Frank's not under me. So you made his equals and I can't give him orders. And and basically Stan was like, Well, I, I guess we better change that. And that's when Roy officially became editor in chief. But again, it's it's just it it made me smile because it's just another instance of uh, it, it's it's not just the Roy story. I I, I, I can turn into a, a Gil Kane story. So I just I it, there are I, I know that people associate Roy with certain artists, whether it's 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 Barry Windsor Smith or it's John Bushima, um or it's Jerry Ordway. It, it's, but I, I, I don't, I may not have read a lot of stories because Roy only did a couple of issues of amazing Spider-Man between Stan and, um, and, and before Jerry Conway's term on it. But, um, I really like the pairing of, of Roy Thomas and Gil, even as, as just people like just listening reading their conversations or if I could listen to them talk, I'd probably be, um, in all heaven, but it, it's, it's a, uh, it's, yeah, I, I think that the fact that, you know, we, we could talk to Roy and, and get insight on how things worked back then. And, and, um, I, I want to, yeah, I mean, and again, you know, Vince wants to talk to, to Roy about crazy. And, and I know that, uh, that, there are absolutely things. I mean, especially with the Avengers, I, I, I can imagine the, the questions that Jason would have for Roy. But I, I would love to know about working with the. Uh, I, I would, I would pick his brain about the behind the scenes stuff. I would like to know what it was like working with certain artists, or, or just you know, what kind of stories can you tell me about you spending time with. Well, Gil King especially, but but just anybody. I mean, he's he's just he's he's wealth of information. It's insane. Mm-hmm. One of the cool things about Alter Ego is that with all the pictures that they have, often of themselves, it's a stunning reminder of that. You know, put it another way, like everybody's grandpa, grandma, and grandpa were cool at one point. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, no, I mean, like we're we're obviously in our forties and fifties now. Um, and our kids are like, wait, you guys used to do that, or you you guys used to go to park, like you know, I mean, and and you know, and 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 Roy and his contemporaries are are in their seventies now, and um, and it's just you see these pictures and like they were hip people, man, like it was, <laughs> and 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 not to going in the, not to go on a tangent, but but while I understand Sean Howell's counting in the untold story wasn't necessarily fact for fact spot on. Um, I did remember reading it. What a cool vibe I got from him portraying how they were young, energetic, artsy people, um, which was cool because, you know, again, we think of them as these nerdy, iconic storytellers that were like the bastions of our fandom. And they are that, too. But man, like even Royce, I mean, he was 26 when he came to work at Marvel and that was old. You know, I mean, they were these were young people in the city partying. Right. Like, I mean having fun it was the 60s man like i mean it was it was party central you know what i mean like they like they partied harder than a lot of us ever partied you know what i mean it was like it was groovy it was fun i mean they you know there was there was a for a lot of them now obviously for for guys like john or jack they were family men and already married and they didn't really go out and do things but 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 most of these people that we hold in such high regard and were so they they were they were in it man like they were living that life it was it was it was wild it was fun so um, it's just neat to see to see them in that image. Like there's a, 
in in one of the issues, I think yes, the Flo Steinberg one. There's uh, some pictures of her when she was running running the underground comic stuff, um, and uh, uh, there's a picture of uh, Art Spiegelman uh, years before he wrote Mouse, and the dude is a freaking badass man. He's like he's like got the you know he's got the wide collar shirt. He's like got the mustache and the long hair. And he looks he's young and handsome. Like he looks like a player, man. It's like whoa, you know, because like I think of Art Spiegelman as like this incredibly professorial serious dude who like speaks on it you know about the holocaust and it won a pulitzer right i mean but he's both people because life's a journey you know <laughs> and i think alter ego does a great as does back they do a great job of of of, of reminding you or or, or or uh memorializing that reality because because we don't to, to say like hey these people were once us you know they were so i, I don't know that that part really does i i get very that's very titillating to me seeing all these people in their heyday when they were just uh when the, the, their whole careers were, were yet to unfold in front of them and they were just doing it for the love of it it's good stuff really you can is. get lost um, though that, that there's a, a real danger of of uh getting sucked in and it's like being abducted you lose a lot of time but it, i mean it's a good kind of uh time loss where you're being informed and entertained uh, but I think the value for the dollar on, on Alter Ego and all the Tomorrow's magazines is very, very high. 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no no doubt. And and that's probably, like you said, yes, you, you can get lost. And, and that's probably why it's I've, I've had these issues for, for over a decade and, and I haven't read them straight through because it's there's they are so dense. And, and you know, once you are done with with a section um or an interview or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, you, you may just need to come for air and, and then, you know, you, you can go back to it. Plus it also depends on whether or not that particular, cause, cause it, it's not like it's just straight through a spotlight on, on Jabashima or Flo Steinberg. I mean, they throw other things in there. Oh yeah. It's, so, so, so there may be other things where you're like, listen, I don't, I don't need to read this right this minute. I'll come back to it. So, um, it's it's an anthology in that respect, but but it's a magazine, so you're going to get a lot of things from a lot of people, and um, you obviously, I mean, we just went on 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 just a handful of just just a few issues out of out of the dozens they have, and and you can obviously very easily get lost. There is a um, tomorrow's never really tells you when sales are going to be over. It, it's kind of you know whatever they feel uh, how things are flowing in the wind, but you can go. To the website has been saluted to, and um, there's their you know the digital catalog. There are a lot of the libraries available digitally. They do have a bunch of issues and modern masters and um, various magazines uh, still available in the physical format, discounted. I do believe I'm going to buy the Don Heck hardcover because it looks like it's only fifteen bucks right now. Um, and and it's a hardcover, and and Don Heck isn't someone who is always. So I think I need to read that Don Heck book, but he there's a, a an emotional attachment there because I remember reading a lot of Don Heck, especially Steel, but I remember reading a lot of Don Heck stories um, when I would visit my grandparents. So sure. I could see me having fun with that hardcover. But there are there are it, it's there's a lot of things on sale right now. Um, apparently, the more you buy, the more you save on shipping um but yeah the digital edition's available you have subscriptions for alter ego for back issue 
uh, Jack Kirby Collector and so on. But um, all the issues that we just discussed, you can get digitally. Um, that just turns into a tomorrow's ad. But it, it, it's, uh-huh. it's 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 a fantastic. But I mean, it, it, they're worth it. I absolutely listen. I mean, over the years we've bought. I the bottom of I had to dig these out because I had stacks of books in front of the bottom shelf where most of my fanzines are. So aside from these alter egos, I had to pull out uh, some back issues, some comic book artists. And, um, and there's, I, it, I'm, I'm a fan of a lot of what tomorrow's does. And, and they, and they're all done by people, whether it's Mike Manley with draw um, or uh, you, 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 the people who are involved in editing, writing for the magazine, um, they they just uh, they care about comics. They're they're comic book fans. Uh, you're going to get uh, it, it isn't nobody's really doing the, the magazine because they're trying to like strike while the iron's hot or or uh, cash in on whatever the the latest gimmick is um danny fingeroth that that's who does right now he's he's the editor behind that magazine um and i am a big fan of danny so there's just um you can get a lot of good stuff from tomorrow's is what i'm saying so uh i had fun going down memory lane with this but i know we didn't just have the magazines to talk about because we had we, we did have one piece of homework that i know vince gave Oh, I did. I didn't know if you took me seriously. Ross, I didn't. I didn't see it on the list. But anyway, um, when was the last time you checked the list? Uh, to, yeah, about an hour ago. Uh-huh. Um, okay. I thought, what with it being fifty years old uh, this year, that uh, reigning Conan number one would be a nice uh, gesture, nice thing to talk about. I don't think a lot of people know. Most people uh, are cognizant of the fact that Roy wrote a lot of Conan. But Roy actually wrote 115 consecutive issues of Conan. Mm -hmm. Do you happen to know how many, because that's true, but do you happen to know offhand, did you come across how many issues of Conan? Total. Like inclusive of the magazines, the Dark Horse stuff, the Marvel 90s stuff. I mean, we have to be talking in the hundreds, right? Yeah, I would guess. Uh, He wrote a lot of Savage Sword, too. Uh, so but I mean. but yeah. writing Savage Sword is not writing the entirety of an issue of Savage Sword. He probably True. wrote the main story. And, and then, then he did some Dark Horse stuff. And yeah. then I know he did, uh, like you said, the Marvel stuff in the 90s. So he, yeah. Fair to say he wrote a ton of Conan. But, um, Certainly as much, like he probably wrote as much Conan as everybody else has written in comics, right? I mean, like he's probably. Definitely, definitely, yeah. yeah. But I mean, everybody wants, they, they want to uh, praise um, the team of stan lee and and uh jack kirby for their accomplishment on fantastic four and that's great but roy did it a little bit better he wrote 115 consecutive issues of conan that's insane it's crazy has anyone um well no we can say mark evanier wrote uh more i guess more than 115 consecutive issues of grew right grew yeah and hmm. and Stan Sakai has done yes Usagi. yes Usagi, uh, but anyway, Cerebus. yeah uh, yeah, well you can lop off the last twenty five fifty issues of Cerebus. yeah McFarlane and Eric Larson Larson on Savage Dragon yeah yeah so it's a, it's an it's it's a big league accomplishment your boy Bomb Queen <laughs> no I'm serious he, right I mean that's 
couple hundred issues, right? You you mean Gold Digger? Gold Digger. Go, yeah. uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yes, I'm that's why when you said Bomb Queen, I'm like, yeah, I was like no, sorry, yeah, I didn't know Gold Digger. Yeah. I like Bomb Queen, but it ain't Gold Digger. Fred Perry, <laughs> yeah, Fred Perry has written what 280 plus mm-hmm. consecutive issues. So there you go. Um, but I, yes, let's visit Conan number one, written by Roy Thomas, illust- of course, catapulting out of the work of Robert E. Howard, illustrated by Barry Windsor Smith. I think Roy was really smart in his approach to this issue because um, it's as it opens, it's basically the Aesir versus the Vanir, and the Aesir, of course, are from Asgard, and and Marvel fans are you know familiar with Asgard. Uh, it's spelled differently, though. A-E-S-G-A-A-R-D, uh, which would be Norway, Sweden, and Denmark, according to uh, Robert E. Howard in his Hyborian Age essay. Um, so you get these two peoples fighting, and the Vanir um, were trying to get the jump on the Aesir. And Conan, at this time, is young. He's he's a, a young buck, uh, way up north, and he's a, a mercenary, and so he will sell his abilities to the to the highest bidder. Thankfully for the Aesir, they paid more than the Vanir because um, Conan takes out the Vanir champion really quick, uh, Gondor, and then he saves the head honcho of the Aesir, Olaf, from being killed. So he's in with the good graces. And uh, the Vanir run away because they were badly, badly beaten thanks to Conan. And uh, Olaf's like, yeah, I think we should just let them go. Let's let's take a breather, lick our wounds, bury our dead, and then we'll go back and kick their ass later. And Conan's like, yes, that's a good plan. Um, it's a neat sequence because Olaf has a tendency to run off at the mouth. And Conan's just like, yeah, he's just listening to him. And then Olaf says, you know what? You talk too much. Like, <laughs> dude, you're the one that's doing all the talking. But Conan's no nonsense. He, uh, if he, if he thinks it, it's coming out of his mouth, which is good, right? Uh, so you have the Vanir have no champion. And their, their leader, Wolf, he, he, he takes note of the situation. He's like, all right, I gotta get out of here. Um, so he and his, uh, his man Friday decide to make a run for it under the auspices of, yeah, we're going to consult the gods. Uh, Hothar uh, is, is his buddy. And we're going to consult the gods and see what's up. You guys stay here, uh, keep our seats warm, and we'll be back. And they're like, Haha, okay, suckers, they're out of here. Uh, but what they wanted, they, they told their men that they'd be back so the Vanir would be the buffer between the rampaging Aesir, who are eventually going to come back, and then um, Wolf could could uh, make way, make his retreat without being killed. But he finds finds a cave. It, it, it's unlike the 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 surroundings. It, it looks like a little pocket of a dimensional pocket, and there's a man there, a, a wizened little shaman named uh, Sharkosh, and he makes a deal with Wolf. They need a young buck. They need somebody strong. He doesn't say why, uh, but there's a, a ceremony of transferal coming up that they're going to do. And they, it all hinges on this, this star stone, this purple thing that fell from the sky. And 
has foretold many things. And this is where Roy laid it on thick, and I think he was really smart for doing this. Not only does the Starstone reveal the past, and we get to see King Cull and the fall of Atlantis, and we get to see Conan being crowned king. And this is where the old dude should have taken a step back and said, wait a minute, how am I seeing Conan being crowned king when I got plans for this dude to use him in the ceremony? He should have put one and one together and then just stopped everything right there. But he was he was too full of um, too full of the magics, right? And then he sees men in space and he goes absolutely – his mind cannot <laughs> comprehend what's going on. But the whole thing was a ruse to to get Conan to swap Conan for um, Tara, which was the shaman's handmaiden. He brought her over to our dimension, and because she was from somewhere else, like the balance of magic, you have to balance the scale. So he had to send uh, a victim, an unwitting victim, over to the other side in order to keep Tara here. But Conan proved too much for them, as Conan tends to do. And and I just thought it was a neat idea to say, okay, here's what came before with Cull. Here's what you're going to see with Conan being crowned king. And it did it in a way that Robert E. Howard, I think, would have um, given the thumbs up. Because you have basically the whole spread of Conan's life. Mercenary who eventually becomes king in the first issue of his magazine. <laughs> right? It's it's a it's a very important issue. I don't think it's it's revolutionary in the approach to the tale. I think mm-hmm. it just reveals how smart Roy was in in dangling bits of uh foreshadowing in front of his readers uh faces knowing full well that this guy who's just a young dude tearing up uh, you know, um, the opposition will eventually ascend to the role of king. Mm-hmm. And Barry's art's not bad. Um, he's still a little green. He's still, still very much uh, emulating Jack Kirby. Oh yeah, like the the X Men uh, sheen did not wear off by now. No, uh, no, no, he's still drawn <laughs> a lot like Jack. But um, taking into account what he does, um morph into the cocoon out of oh, which God. he emerges yeah just get it out of your system barry it's still a good looking issue <laughs> you know but it's not quote barry windsor smith at this point yeah, it's, it's just room. barry smith yeah right yeah, yeah. but right i mean there. it's it's a very important issue um i i have it in a number of different formats the the og floppy i have it in um you know, collections and the essentials. And I've read it about, what, at this point, maybe at least a dozen times. And it mm-hmm. it doesn't get old. It, it This issue is the equivalent to the, um, the prelude to a lot of Conan. No, O Prince, that when, it, you know, this is that in comic book form. Or in, sequ- in sequential form, that that um, rambling dialogue that we usually get at the 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 head of Conan stories, this is it illustrated. We get we get to see Cull and the fall of Atlantis and the the, the crowning of the king, and it's just it, it's a wonderful issue, it, but it's old, it's old home uh, time for me. 
Mm-hmm. I grew up on this stuff, so how could it not be? Uh, now, was this your first introdu- introduction to Conan, or were you? A, uh, did you read the novels? No, I've read the novels, and this is what I wanted. To, I wanted to get into it with Roy. Uh, there are two people I believe are, are of utmost importance. Well, three. Let's count the original author, right? Uh, for the popularity of Conan, obviously Robert E. Howard, Rosetta, and Roy. The, yeah, Frazetta. Frazetta did. Sure. I I would, I would think that Frazetta. It had it not been for Frazetta, Conan would not even be an option for for Marvel, because no one would have heard of him. Like, yes, it was, it, it was the original Pulps was very popular, but it was Frazetta that lit a fire under everybody in the '60s with those covers. Um, it, they just sold them the. the the covers sold the books. No one even cared what it was, what the interiors were like. They saw those covers and like, holy shit! I need to read this. It, the, you cannot under overstate Frazetta's importance to Conan. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, um, and Roy, who had the the smarts to say, let's bring this character to Marvel. And looking back, two hundred bucks an issue, and they were. He had to find ways to make mm-hmm. up to fifty bucks. Like I'm sure Marvel made more than that two hundred dollars back with the amount of copies they sold. Even at fifteen cents, I would cents. hope so. I mean, okay. no, I'm saying I'm sure they do, right? I mean, I yeah. But it just shows you uh, his Roy's character, how he he wrote the the first. Well, he wrote the first hundred and fifteen issues <laughs> because he was trying to uh, make up that fifty bucks overage on each uh, issue. That's God bless him. That's well, it just... must have been profitable because, as you noted, he stayed around for a decade writing it. And uh, they did swap for Buscema, who at the time was Marvel's A-lister. So yeah. to whatever extent the page rates were different, we, we, I don't know how different, but they obviously had to, they had to be good enough that he, they put their guy on the book. So Yeah. And it's one title where we saw a cover here and there. I think Giant Size Conan number four. And there was another one, but Jack pretty much was hands off Conan. And you would you would think that well that was seventy, so Jack wasn't around, right? That's the thing, yeah, yeah. But he eventually came back for a little while. Why? I, there's there's not a significant amount of Kirby Conan illustrations. I don't think there's. I have I've seen maybe less than ten in my lifetime. Mm. Well, can't you say the same for, I mean, it wasn't like Romita was cranking out Conan stuff, and it wasn't like Ditko was a, you know, I mean, it was pretty much. Yeah, but if there's a character that speaks to the Kirby power, it's Conan. You know, like I could see Ditko not wanting to draw Conan. Sure. But Kirby. I should know this as a Buscema fan, but how many issues of Roy's Conan run did Buscema draw? I mean, it had to be the vast majority, right? Uh, well... It ended at two seventy five. So I would right, but Roy, well, Roy didn't write. Right, Roy didn't write it until two seventy five. No, but I would say, I think John drew at least one hundred and fifty. That's what I'm saying. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> I mean, talk about streaks. How many artists have done that many? Oh, uh, there you go. Uh, over a hundred issues. Yeah, twenty five through one ninety. Um, that's crazy. But they, I mean, like, how many artists have drawn 
like other than their own book, have drawn that that many issues of, of the same book. Because if you think about like the great pairings, right? I mean, Burns runs with like or or, or I mean, I, I guess Kirby would be the. I mean, Kirby comes to mind, but but even now he didn't even really. I mean, for most of the titles, he went what a hundred and hundred and twelve. How many? No, FF? Kirby's FF. No, it's 104, I think, or 105. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure Roy would know. But, uh, you know, I should know because Jack's my, my god. But I think it's it's not 110. It's less than 110. Mm-hmm. So I would say 105. But, like, just think about it. I mean, if you think about Romita or Ditka, I mean, any of these guys, I mean, none of them really drew 100-plus issues of the same title. No. Like no, the Batman, well, like nobody drew Batman a hundred for a hundred issues. Nobody now. Some people might have gotten close to drawing a hundred Batman comics because there were lots of them. But I mean, damn. I don't know. I think it's pretty. I would think Apero drew a hundred Batman issues, but not not consecutively. Like he's well, not saying consecutive. He, he well, yeah. I mean, whether it's it's Batman or Detective or Batman and the Outsiders. Um, Dick Dillon drew 115 issues of Justice League of America from 1968 until he died in 1980. Um, John Byrne, he he came on, he started writing Fantastic Four with like 230, I think maybe his first issue was 232, but like 230, but he he stopped around 298. And, and he didn't draw every issue either. He, there, there, there were, he may have um, framed an issue and then Cary Gamble did most of the work, but... Um, but if if I don't know if yeah Jim Aparo would would be would, Kurt Swan with Superman duh um, they were just Hawkman stories it's not like Hawkman had his own title for a lot of the Murphy Anderson stuff um, but yeah I mean it, again it, it it tends to that it it peters out around the eighties when 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 folks like Bushima and and um, and Aparo were were steady working you're not you're not going to really get Artists these days aren't in the mood to seem to want to, on, on, especially on on big two IPs on on their own. Of course, yeah, of course, Eric Larson wants to keep drawing Savage Dragon, but I don't know too many artists who work for the big two who want to keep drawing um, certain characters for the long haul. Yeah, I think the the days of guys sticking on mainstream books for dozens and dozens of issues are dead. Yeah. You're going to see the Fred Perry's and the, the Eric Larson's devote all their time and attention to things they own. It just makes and sense, I, right? I don't I don't mind if someone doesn't want to do more than – I mean, yes, okay, it's great that, that Gabriel Walter did did the bulk of those 12 issues for, for The Vision or, or, or Mateus with uh, Omega Men. And, and, you know, so I mean I'm, I'm glad we have artists who were able to stay on, on an arc or a story. I, I would – I would gladly give up someone staying on a book for five years if I could get them to do a complete arc on their own. And that's we're, we're not getting a lot of that much these days either. But, um, you know, yeah. I, but again, but that's I think that's part of what made me a comic book fan and, and, and knowing who being able to look at at it at without looking at the credits, just looking at the cover. And seeing who did the cover, and then, then flipping through the inside, and 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 knowing who who drew it based on their style, but it's because I'd buy certain books and know that artist's style, and 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 because they stuck on books for so long. I mean, I didn't, I would be 
very surprised if um, George Perez went past if, if if he wanted to do Teen Titans for for hundred issues. He probably would have, would have, but I mean that's that that's that's a lot of work. But yeah, I I don't yeah we're not like you said Vince where it's those days have long passed us by. Yeah, it's going to get increasingly more difficult too, because as as the uh, artists get notoriety they're going to be wooed away by other things in within the industry most notably image or the chance of doing their own thing and so i i think it's going to get harder and harder to get um extended work out of the the mainstream artists i mean that is what it is um yeah i mean i just i looked it up i this isn't an exact number because it's it's there were skip issues but uh, Busema drew at least 140 issues of Conan the Barbarian proper. Oh, nice. That That's fucking ridiculous, dude. That's a ridiculous... I mean, so that's, that's not taking into account Savage Sword, either. No, no, that's just the, the main... That's Conan the Barbarian. Oh, man. Uh, Savage Sword, he... Oh, God. He, Jesus, he... <laughs> he uh, yeah, he drew... I, I'd have to tally that, too. But uh, quite a lot of those as well. Guy was a monster. And he drew 10 issues of King Conan as well. So he's well over 200 Conan issues, if you're including, like, the, as the character. Get in where you fit in. Uh, and the graphic novels. Oh, which, by the way, he said was his favorite thing he ever drew. Really? Because he got to color it. Huh. Nice. Now, I don't know. what He drew two, so I don't know which one he was talking about. In the interview, he doesn't mention whether he was talking about Conan of the Isles or Conan the Rogue. Uh, maybe you would know Vince. Like I don't know if he covered wow. both, but yeah. Huh. Good for him. I have to look th- those up. They're around. And those his... were late. Those were eighty nine and ninety one, so they were pretty late in his. Oh life. yeah, yeah. But I mean, he his work didn't suffer. No, no. I'm just saying it's interesting, right? That and again, because he just loved to. Um... And Roy, you know, Roy said about that. He was like, you know, it it, it annoyed the shit out of him as as an editor. Uh, that Busemba would go from he like he'd be like, all right, I'm going to ink my own stuff. And then they'd be like, all right, I don't want to ink my own stuff. Like, and he said that he would change his mind all the time about that. And it would be kind of a pain in the ass because they'd have to reassign guys or find new work for guys if he was going to ink himself. And, um, I asked our awesome patrons, patrons um, what their either favorite, if they could remember their first Roy Thomas comic or their favorite or both. And um, Brian Clark said uh, he can't remember which issue, but yeah, he loves all the Avengers run, which I assume he means the first and the second run. Uh, but he said Marvel premiere number 15, first appearance of Iron Fist, probably his favorite. He also said Squadron Supreme pretty high on his list. Uh, Rod said his favorite was Young All-Stars number one. Uh, Neil said Star Wars one and forward. How about that? Yeah, John, John O'Neill agreed, said uh, those early Star Wars issues were, were right for him. Uh, John Pasolacqua said it'd have to be the Shazam story he did in Action Comics Weekly where he fights Captain Nazi. There's a <laughs> deep cut for you. Nice job, John. Uh, uh, to- uh, T- Tim Thomas says uh, All-Star Squadron. Um, Chris Chavez said All-Star Squadron was his first Roy comic. Uh, he really enjoyed Young All-Stars and extreme love for Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew. Uh, Christopher Burton said he attributes Fantastic Four number 171 as the 
comic that made him a reader. Uh, and that was wow. written by Roy and penciled by George Perez. And Frank said, it's got to be Fred Sonia for him, both first and favorite. So I'm with Frank. Yeah. Well, based on the interview that people have already listened to, there's no doubt about that. You, yeah. You brought the Red Sonia love hard. Good choice of words. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, after, uh, after the interview, I was going to ask Roy if uh, Frank Thorne sends him Christmas presents. Every year, because basically Roy gave him the uh, raw material to generate a career. Let's just say, mm-hmm. yeah. But I mean, Frank's a wonderful artist. Love his stuff. Um, so there you go. Uh, I it, it it's rough math, but it looks like um, Jim Aparo did at least 170 Batman appearances between Detective Comics, Batman, and Batman and the Outsiders, there and Brave and the Bold. Okay, yeah. It's insane. Those are remarkable achievements. Yeah, such a bygone era, though. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Because it's like, I mean, like, I don't really think of Buscema as a Fantastic Four guy. I mean, like, in the sense that, I mean, obviously, meaning, like, when I think of him, I don't, I just, because I think of Kirby and then I think of, of, of Byrne, like, when I think of FF, of like, you know, and then my mind even probably goes to somewhere like Waringo just because of his being more proximate. But like he drew like fifty Fantastic Four issues, like like. But again, back then these guys drew so many comics. Yeah, right. I mean, like we say, he was doing three, four comics a month. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Guys do, I would say, would you say the average under contract guy does maybe what eight to ten issues a year now? If, if that, you're lucky, yeah, if that. Well, I'm saying if they're under contract, meaning they have. You know, um, like your Mahmoods, your Stegmans, they probably do 10 issues a year would be my guess. Yeah, sounds right. Right? And then a, an absolute shit ton of covers. I, I saw, Rob, speaking of Rob Liefeld, I saw him tweet the other day that he's drawn like 300 Deadpool covers or something. Uh, like, that's incredible. <laughs> but I guess these these variants, they like they, just, they, yeah. crank out the, they crank out the cut. They get everybody to draw these variant covers. Uh, so 300 at probably, what do you think Rob gets for a, a cover? About four Gs? Uh, you know, it's tough to say. I was going to say two to three grand, but he it, it he's, he's a shrewd businessman. So, yeah. So that's close to, that's three quarters of a million dollars <laughs> just for drawn Deadpool. Oh, yeah. Just God draw bless him. One character. And it's usually well, he the gets same $80 poem. for drawing a Deadpool uh, balloon uh, remark on on a comic now when he signs it. So, I mean, he knows how to monetize. Yes, he does. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we have to give it up for Mr. Thomas for uh, being with us. I hope it continues. I hope we get to talk to him again. Uh, in the meantime, remember, if you want to get your books, get them cheap, get them delivered right to your door, there's only really one place to go, and that's Discount Comic Book Service, dcbservice.com. Listen to this. DC Month, you get to pick from three of the Hill House books, Basketful of Heads, Dollhouse Family, and Lolo Woods, each twelve forty nine. That's crazy. Uh, from Black Label, it's the question, The Deaths of Vic Sage, hardcover, for fourteen ninety nine, and good old Steve Gerber, Hard Time, the complete series trade paperback, not thirty nine ninety nine, but nineteen dollars and ninety nine cents. Let's keep the Conan love going. 
We talked about the first issue of this uh, when it came out. The second and final issue has arrived, written by Regis Hautier. I hope I'm doing that justice. With art by Olivier Vatin and Dieter Cassegrain. It is, of course, The Sumerian, Red Nails number two. Um, I'm not going to get anywhere deep in it. Let's just say uh, if you read the first issue and enjoyed it, the um, second and final issue will compound that joy and love by a thousand. (laughs) Because we finally are getting a glimpse at what they mean when they say the uncensored Conan. Because there's a lot of sexy time in this book. But it boggles my mind a little bit because while they do seem to have um, uh, a fast and loose policy with sex and violence, there's no outright nudity. It's close. Uh, Valeria is strapped to a table and she's about to be sacrificed. And she's nude. But the, the, the smoke from the braziers next to her are concealing the the naughty bits so it 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 is in a sense it is uncensored but it's not super explicit mm-hmm. which, which is i guess nice right because i don't know if i really want to see super explicit conan just yeah just my like vampirella never want to mm-hmm. see vampirella nude i don't really think i want to see super uncensored explicit conan like chopping off heads and stuff again it's the old uh sex and violence argument uh yeah we can show people being mutilated but show explicit uh sex is a bad thing um Mm -hmm. this is very tastefully done the the illustration is phenomenal uh i have nothing but praise for what ablaze has done with the sumerian and uh, i really really think you should read this book it's it's right here next to me, ready to be read. It's amazing. Uh, there's uh, not-so-subtle shifts in the color of each scene. It'll be uh, predominantly red and earthy uh, ochres and, and dark browns and ruddy uh, crimsons, and then it'll shift to pale, washed-out blues and grays. It's amazing how they keyed the 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 color palettes to each scene in this book it i I cannot wait for the hardcover for this a floppy's not going to do this justice you need this in a hardcover but that's just me need more so uh get the to a comic shop and throw lots of money at a blaze get uh red nails and anything else that they've done with the cimmerian on the cover uh you will not be disappointed nice yeah i dig it uh, in your travels, I'm going to bring it back to our guest, and 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 I briefly touched on it, um, as we were nearing the end of our conversation. Um, this was a one shot that came out after the Crisis on Infinite Earths because, um, once in in the post crisis world, uh, wasn't really sure where heroes from the 1940s would um, fit. So Roy got to write um, a one-shot where the Justice Society was taken off of um, off the playing field because there was, there was, there was no reason for um, Alan Scott um, 
or Rex Tyler or Al Pratt to to exist, um, not in the new universe that that, that was created. Uh, so Roy had he wrote a really nifty story, and it was a one shot that I really I loved the cover. I was drawn to the cover first of all. Um, it was a uh, it was a really cool. Um, David Ross and Mike Stovich color cover, uh, but a big old balloon on the cover saying 68 pages, no ads. Um, and it's the justice society, members of the justice society, Hawkman, uh, power girl, specter, um, star spangled kid and Dr. Fate looking down on the justice society in, in, in ruins. And, um, Roy wrote this so that someone else somewhere down the line where the heroes needed, or if they wanted to write them out of this hole, um, he, he gave them an escape patch. So basically the, the last stage is just society, which again, I found out it was, it was reprinted as a, uh, as a collection uh, with a bunch of, um, of origins of, our golden age heroes, but, but the, the one shot thing that, that, that I really enjoyed, um, dealt with, uh, the spear of destiny and Hitler and Surtur and the, the story uh, spoilers is the justice society <laughs> is in a never ending battle. Yes. Is, is, um, they, uh, they are in a never ending battle. Uh, it's basically Ragnarok, and that's exactly what it is. And it's it's mentioned specifically in here. It's Ragnarok. Um, the uh, and, and so they're just going to keep fighting, keep dying, keep fighting. And and it was, like I said, it was a way to get get these characters off the board, but where they needed, um, you could definitely use them at a later date. But um, instead of just disappearing, they they were actually, I, I think, Roy did a, treated them with. Um, well, with with the respect I would expect Roy to, to treat these characters that that he adored so much, but uh, but yeah, this it, so in your travels, if if you can if you can find the one shot, great, you know, read that by all means. I, I really again, I, I like the I like the art. It, it was Dave Ross before um, his Alpha Flight days, and, and and I remembered Ross's independent work, and it was I, I was it was nice seeing him on a DC book, especially one like a one shot like this. But uh, if you get the trade. Great, get a bunch of bonus material there. But yeah, in your travels, this is this is a one shot that if I always find it in the back issue bins, I I always grab it. Um, just because it sentimental to me. It it's uh, it, it's not necessarily a a piece of work that, uh, that that is highly sought after or um, in demand for any sort of reason. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's just one of those things I remember seeing on the shelf, grabbing it, reading it, then in there. But uh, in your travels, that's what I got for you tonight. Respect. Um, by the way, before I do major travels, we do need to remind folks that next week is the book of the month. So you want to you want to remind folks what we're going to be talking about? Absolutely. Um, you will you'll be reading or you'll be listening to us after we have read uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Hard uh, Traveling Heroes. Um, by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams collecting Green Lantern, which was, of course, renamed um, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, um, issues 
76 through 87 and number 89 and stories from flash 217 218 219 and 226 so that was uh that was the winner barely really barely um one and uh i am i'm looking forward to it i i I started reading it i forgot how i I'll definitely save it for this. It 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 starts off a little. Basically, I I, I believe the the our creative team were just getting a feel for uh, the characters and the stories that uh, they were planning on telling. But um, as we get as I get towards the middle, and and um, I'm really excited for for those stories. But yeah, next week that is uh, that is the spotlight. That's that's the uh, main driving force of the episode next week. Yes, indeed it is. Um, and so in your travels, you if you'd like to delve more into Roy's career and his worldviews and all that good stuff, there are two places we wanted to make sure that you're aware of. Uh, the first is uh, a blog called Hero Envy. It's hero-envy.blogspot.com. Uh, and... Uh, it is uh, the first post you'll see. It's it's not updated all that frequently, um, so you won't have to search for it. The first post you'll see is from earlier this year, and that will link you to the official Roy Thomas Characters, Concepts, and Creations database. Um, Roy and his, uh, his manager, John, uh, put together... Uh, an absolutely comprehensive list of all of the things that Roy uh, co-created over the years. And uh, to Roy's credit, he makes the point that he co-created virtually everything that he's known as a creator for, because obviously how can you not have co-creators when you're in comics? Um, So again, that's uh, hero-envy.blogspot.com. And then if you would like to communicate with or collaborate or compliment or thank Mr. Thomas directly, uh, the best way to reach him is uh, on Facebook. I know some of you are grumbling because you no longer use Facebook. Too bad for y'all. But if you're on Facebook still, uh, you can find him at the Roy Thomas Appreciation Board. It's a group, so just search for that. Uh, You have to be invited, but but, uh, it's a pretty quick process, not dissimilar to our own. I guess unlike our own, you won't have to answer a quiz to to get approved. But again, that's the Roy Thomas Appreciation Board, and you'll see what he's up to, signings, appearances, uh, thought pieces. Anytime he does an interview or whatever, uh, they post it there. Our, our interview and podcast will be posted there, uh, Toot Sweet. Um, so, yeah, so that's the Roy Thomas Appreciation Board. Um, and then in your travels, um, you know, again, for me, when I think of Roy, I think of the Avengers and um, – I'm not going to front on the Kree Scroll War, but frankly, I'm guessing if any of you knew anything about Roy and the Avengers, you know of the Kree Scroll War. Um, so, what I'd love for you to do is, if you feel like digging into the crates, whether it be through an Essential or uh, I know a lot of you have uh, Marvel Unlimited, um, I would love for you, if you haven't done so, to read uh, Avengers number fifty-seven and fifty-eight. Uh, that would be the first two issues. Uh, of the vision's existence and uh, they're written by Roy drawn by big John Buscema. Uh, and I, I remember those issues. I, uh, 
I would say Avengers 57, the cover to it. And I'm a guy who struggles with with covers because it's it's just not how I think of things anymore. But the Avengers 57 for me is one of the most iconic covers. Um, for a long time, I collected first appearances uh, of comics uh, of characters, and um, that is a extremely hard issue to find a high grade on because the cover is basically all red and black. Uh, and as Vince can tell you, red does not age well; uh, it, it fades. When, uh, especially in the printing process they used back then, so it's very hard to get a pristine, deep red cover. But uh, but the insides are wonderful um, and and funny. I mean, like funny in a good way because it was the Silver Age and it was silly, you know. And I mean, silver into bronze and it was silly. Like uh, the first appearance of the Vision is him basically invading, doing a home invasion, trying to kill Wanda, and um, you know she's frightened by him as this invader and he's trying to kill her, but. But what's hilarious about it is, you know, he's the vision. He's like, if you're creating a killer for someone, why would you make them, uh, you know, why would you make them red and green with a cape and and and, and, and tights, right? Like, it, it, he's he's drawn like a dynamic superhero, uh, but is supposed to be this imposing creeper that's uh, that's that's sneaking into her house and trying to do do harm to her. Um, some very very dated uh, language when it comes to um, the male female uh, dating or, or relationship dynamic, right? A lot of uh, uh, a lot of uh, Hank Pym being the man and and Wanda being the doting girlfriend, uh, you know, type of thing. Like she gets the whole premise of the issue is that uh, they're coming into her apartment and he blows her off for uh, a bacteria study he has to do at the lab. And uh, she's all bent out of shape because of it and like pouting throughout the whole issue, even while she's fighting. The signs always there, Wanda. Always there. Um, but yeah, but no, but but once we get beyond that, and again, I, I find that charming because it was just of its time. Um, we uh, some really important issues in terms of the lore of the Avengers. Uh, I think the Vision is, is goes on to become one of the more important uh, characters of the next generation of Avengers. Um, we and in those two issues, you, know, you talk about decompression. In those two issues, we we get his first appearance, we get his uh, backstory, and we get his shift from villainous uh, killer robot or killer android to Avenger. <laughs> we get all of that in the first two in, in his first two issues of existence. Right, he goes from 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 ne'er do well to hero, Avengers member, and we find out his whole backstory. In and in addition to that, in these two issues, we also find out. The fact that, uh, which we all take for granted now, that that Ultron himself, who created the Vision, was created by Hank Pym. You get all of that plus a T'Challa backstory about why he's with with the Avengers now because of how disgruntled he was in Wakanda. Uh, And a whole mess more, uh, including um, trouble in paradise between uh, the then-dating Black Widow and Hawkeye. Um, You get all of that in, in, in 42 pages of comic. Like, it's it's... And by the way, I mean, any of you, if you read back issues, if you go back to that era and read comics, that's just how it was. You got a lot of story in, in a very little amount of pages. And uh, it's just remarkable to, to read two issues. I mean, all of that now would be a basically a year's worth of a Marvel summit. <laughs> right. Yeah, like all, true. Right. Um, and probably like 30 to 40 issues, including one, one shots and spinoffs and all that. So, so anyway, um, just go back and check that out. I, I really do think it's a great origin story. And it is, again, not just an origin story for 
the vision, but also an origin story for Ultron. So uh, it's uh, Avengers 57 and 58. There you go. All right, everybody. If you enjoyed this, we really hope you did. Uh, and you want more of the 11 o'clock thing, go to Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, and Instagram. You'll find us there. Um, please check out our Patreon page. Take a look around. Uh, it's patreon.com forward slash 11 o'clock comics one one, no apostrophe. And uh, we have a lot of fun. There's a lot of people there. Community grows by the minute. It's like a family, really. Um, and you know the drill. Say goodnight. David. Good night. That's it for that one.